This is the SFF Audio Podcast. Today's podcast is a reading of The Temple of Death by A.C. Benson. It's read by Connor Kay. It runs 43 minutes, and we will be discussing it afterward. The Temple of Death by A.C. Benson It was late in the afternoon of a dark and rainy day when Paulinus left the little village where he had found shelter for the night. The village lay in a great forest country in the heart of Gaul. The scattered folk that inhabited it were mostly heathens, and very strange and secret rites were still celebrated in lonely sanctuaries. Christian teachers, of whom Paulinus was one, travelled alone or in little companies along the great high roads, turning aside to visit the woodland hamlets and labouring patiently to make the good news of the word known. They were mostly unmolested, for they travelled under the powerful name of Romans, and in many places they were kindly received. Paulinus had been for months slowly faring from village to village without any fixed plan of journeying, but asking his way from place to place as the Spirit led him. He was a young man, a very faithful Christian, and with a love of adventure and travel which stood him in good stead. He carried a little money, but he had seldom need to use it, for the people were simple and hospitable. He did not try to hold assemblies, for he believed that the gospel must spread like leaven from quiet heart to quiet heart. Indeed, he did not purpose to proclaim the word, but rather to prepare the way for those that should come after. He was of a strong habit, spare and upright. When he was alone, he walked swiftly, looking very eagerly about him. He loved the aspect of the earth, the green branching trees, the wild creatures of the woodland, the voices of birds and the sound of streams. And he had too a great and simple love for his own kind. And though he had little eloquence, he had a plentiful command of friendly and shrewd talk. And even better than he loved to speak, he loved to listen. He had a sweet and open smile that drew the hearts of all whom he met especially of the children. And he loved his wandering life in the free air, without the daily cares of settled habit. He spent the night with an old and calm man, who had been a warrior in his youth, but who could now do little but attend to his farm. Paulinus had spoken to him of the love of the Father and the tender care that Jesus had to his brothers on earth. The old man had listened courteously, and it said that it sounded fair enough, but that he was too old to change, and must stand in the ancient ways. Paulinus did not press him, his custom was never to do that. In the morning he had gone to and fro in the village, and it was late before he thought of setting out. The old man had pressed him to stay another night, but something in Paulinus's heart had told him that he must not wait, for it seemed to him that there was work to be done. 
The old man came with him to the edge of the forest and gave him very particular directions to the village he was bound for, which lay in the heart of the wood. Of one thing I must advise you, he said. There is, in the wood, some way off the track, a place to which I would not have you go. It is a temple of one of our gods, a dark place. Be certain, dear sir, to pass it by. No one would go there willingly, save that he was sometimes compelled. He broke off suddenly here and looked about him fearfully. Then he went on in a low voice. It is called the Temple of the Great Death, and there are rites done there of which I may not speak. I would it were otherwise, but the gods are strong, and the priest is a hard and evil man, who won his office in a terrible way, and shall lose it no less terribly. Oh, go there not, dear stranger. And he laid his hand upon his arm. Dear brother, said Paulinus, I have no mind to go there, but your words seem to have a dark meaning behind them. What are these rites of which you speak? The old man shook his head. I may not speak of them, he said. It is better to be silent. Then they took a kind leave of each other, and Paulinus said that he would pass again that way to see his friend. For we are friends now, I know. And so he went into the woods. It was a wood of very ancient trees and the dark leaves roofed over the grassy track, making a tunnel. The heavens, too, grew dark above, and Paulinus heard the drops patter upon the leaves. Generally, he loved well enough to walk in the woodways, but here it seemed different. He would have liked a companion. Something sinister and terrible seemed to him to hide within those gloomy avenues, and the feeling grew stronger every moment. But he said to himself, some of the simple hymns, with which he often cheered his way, and felt again that he was in the hands of God. Presently he passed a little forest pool, that was one of the marks of his way. Upon the further bank he was surprised to see a man sitting, with a rod or spear in his hand, looking upon the water. He was glad to see another man in this solitude, and hailed him cheerfully, asking if he was in the right way. The man looked up at the sound. Paulinus saw that he was of middle age, very strong and muscular, but undoubtedly he had an evil face. He scowled as though he were vexed to be interrupted, and with an odd and angry gesture of the hand, he stepped quickly within the wood and disappeared. Paulinus felt in his mind that the man wished him evil, and went on his way somewhat heavily. And now the sun began to go down and it was darker than ever in the forest. Paulinus came to a place where the road forked, and thinking over his note of the way, struck off to the left. But as he did so, he felt a certain misgiving which he could not explain. He now began to hurry, for the light failed every moment, and the colour was soon gone out of the grass beneath his feet, leaving all in a dark and indistinguishable brown. Soon the path forked again, and then came a road striking across the one that he had pursued, of which he did not think he had been told. He went straight forward, but it was now grown so dark that he could no longer see his way, and stumbled very sadly along the wet path, feeling with his hand for the trees. He thought that he must by this time have gone much further than the distance between the villages, and it was clear to him that he had somehow missed the road. 
he at last determined that he would try to return, and slowly went back the way he had come, till at last the night came down upon him. Then Paulinus was struck with a great fear. There were wolves in those forests he knew, though they lived in the unvisited depths of the wood, and came not near the habitations of men, unless they were fierce with famine. But he had heard several times a strange snarling cry some way off in the wood, and once or twice he had thought he was being softly followed. So he determined to go no further, but to climb up into a tree, if he could find one, and there to spend an uneasy night. He felt about for some time, but could discover nothing but small saplings, when he suddenly saw through the trees a light shine, and it came across him that he had stumbled, as it were, by accident upon the village. So he went forward slowly towards the light. There was no track here, often catching his feet among brambles and low plants, till the gloom lifted somewhat and he felt a freer air and saw that he was in a clearing in the wood. Then he discerned in front of him a space of deeper darkness against the sky, what he thought to be the outline of the roofs of buildings. Then the light shone out of a window near the ground, but presently he came to a stop, for he saw the light flash and gleam in the ripples of a water that lay in his path and blocked his way. Then he called aloud once or twice, something seemed to stir in the house, and presently the light in the window was obscured by the head and shoulders of a man, who pressed to the opening, but there was no answer. Then Paulinus spoke very clearly, and said that he was a Roman, a traveller, who had lost his way. Then a harsh voice told him to walk round the water to the left, and wait a while, which Paulinus did. Soon he heard steps come out of the house and come to the water's edge. Then he heard sounds as though someone were walking on a hollow board. Then, with a word of warning, there fell the end of a plank near him on the bank, and he was bidden to come across. He did so, though the bridge was narrow, and he was half afraid of falling. But in a moment he was at the other side, a dark figure beside him. He was bidden to wait again, and the figure went over the water and seemed to pull in the plank that had served as a bridge. And then the man returned and bade him to come forward. Paulinus followed the figure, and in a moment he could see the dark eaves of a long, low house before him, very rudely but strongly built. Then a door was opened, showing a lighted room within, and he was bidden to step forward and enter. He found himself in a large, bare chamber, the walls and ceiling of a dark wood. A pine torch flared and dripped in a socket. There were one or two rough seats and a table spread with a meal. At the end of the room there were some bricks piled for a fireplace, along with charred ashes and a smouldering log among them, for though it was still summer, the nights began to be brisk. On the walls hung some implements, a spade and a hoe, a spear, a sword, some knives and javelins. He that inhabited it seemed to be a tiller of the soil and part a huntsman, but there were other things of which Paulinus could not guess the use, hooks and pronged forks. 
there were skins of beasts on the floor, and on the ceiling hung bundles of herbs and dried meats. The air was pungent with pine smoke. He recognized the man at once as the same that he had seen beside the pool, and he looked to Paulinus even stranger and more dangerous than he had seemed before. He seemed, too, to be on his guard against some terror, and held in his hand a club as though he were ready to use it. Presently, he said a few words in a harsh voice. You are a Roman, he asked. How may I know it? I do not know, said Paulinus, trying to smile, unless you will believe my word. What is your business here, said the man. Are you a merchant? No, said Paulinus, I have no business. I travel and I talk with those I meet. Perhaps I am a teacher, a Christian teacher. At this, the man's sternness seemed to relax a little. Oh, the new faith, he said, rather contemptuously. Well, I've heard of it, and it will never spread. But I'm curious to know what it really is, and you shall tell me of it. But suddenly, his angry terrors came upon him again, and he said with a frown, But where are you bound, and whence come you? Paulinus, with such calmness as he could muster, for he felt himself to be in some danger, he scarcely knew what, mentioned the names of the villagers. Well, you have missed your way, said the man. Why did you come here to the temple of death? Paulinus had a sudden access of dread at the words. Is this the temple? He said. It is the place I was bidden to avoid. At this the man gave a fearful kind of smile, like a flash of lightning out of a somber cloud, and he said with a certain dark pride, Aye, there are few that come willingly, but now you must abide with me tonight, unless, he added with a savage look, you have a mind to be eaten by wolves. I will certainly stay, said Paulinus. I am not afraid. I serve a very mighty God myself, who guards his servants if they guard themselves. Aye, does he? said the man with a flash of anger. Then he must needs be strong, but I wish you no evil. He added in a moment, I think you are a brave man, perhaps a good one. I fear you not. There is no need for you to fear me, said Paulinus. My God is a God of peace and love, and indeed, he added with a smile, looking at the man's great frame, I should have thought there was little need for you to fear anyone. This last word seemed to dissolve the man's evil mood all at once, for he put away the club he had in a corner of the room and bade Paulinus to eat and drink, which he did gladly. The meat was a strongly flavoured kind of venison, and there was a rough bread and a drink that seemed both sweet and strong and had the taste of summer flowers. He praised the food, and the man said to him, Aye, I have learned to suit it to my taste. I live here in much loneliness, and there is none to help me. After the meal, the man asked him to tell him something of the new faith, and Paulinus very willingly told him as simply as he could of the way of Christ. The man listened with a sort of gloomy attention. So this is it, he said at last, which is taking hold of the world. Well, it is pretty enough, a good faith for such as live in ease and security, for women and children in fair houses. But it suits not with these forests. The God who made these great lonely woods and who dwells in them, is very different. 
He rose and made a strange obeisance as he talked. He loves death and darkness and the cries of strong and furious beasts. There is little peace here, for all that the woods are still, and as for love, it is of a brutish sort. Nay, stranger, the gods of these lands are very different, and they demand very different sacrifices. They delight in sharp woes and agonies, in grinding pains, in dripping blood and death sweats, and cries of despair. If these woods were all cut down, and the land ploughed up, and peaceful folk lived here in quiet fields and farms, then perhaps your simple, easy-going god might come and dwell with them. But now, if he came, he would flee in terror. Nay, said Paulinus, but somewhat sadly, for the man's words seemed to have a fearful truth about them. The father waits long and is kind. The victory of love is slow, but it is sure. It is slow enough, said the man. These forests have grown here beyond the memory of man, and they will stand long after you and I have turned to a handful of dust. And so I will serve my gods while I live. But you are weary, he added, and may sleep. Fear not any hurt from me. And as for the way you speak of, well, I will say that I should be content if it had the victory. I am sick at heart of the hard rule of these gods, but I fear them, and I will serve them faithfully till I die. And then he brought some skins of beasts and heaped them in a corner of the room for Paulinus, who lay down gladly, and from mere weariness fell asleep. But the priest sat long before the fire in thought, and twice he went to the door and looked out, as if he were waiting for some tidings. Once the opening of the door aroused Paulinus, and he saw the dark figure of the priest stand in the doorway, and over his head and shoulders a dark still night pierced with golden stars, and once again, when he opened the door a second time, the pure gush of air into the close room woke Paulinus from a deep sleep. Again, he saw the priest stand silent in the door, with his hands clasped behind him, and through the door Paulinus could see the dim ring of dewy woods that seemed to sleep in quiet dreams, and over the woods a great pale light of dawn that was coming slowly up out of the east. But Paulinus fell back into sleep again from utter weariness, as a man might dive into a pool, and when at last he opened his eyes, he saw that day was come with an infinite sweetness and freshness. The birds called faintly in the thickets, and the priest was going slowly about his daily task, preparing food. And Paulinus, from where he lay, smiled at him, and the priest smiled back, as though half ashamed, and presently said, You have slept deeply, sir, and to sleep as you have done shows that a man is brave and innocent. Then Paulinus rose, and would have helped him, but the man said, Nay, you are my guest, and besides, I do things in a certain order, as all do who live alone, and I would not have anyone to meddle with me. He spoke gruffly, but there was a certain courtesy in his manner. Presently the priest asked him to come and eat, and they sat together, eating in a friendly way. The priest was silent, but Paulinus asked of many things, and at last the priest said, I thought I loved my loneliness, but it seems that I am pleased to have a companion, I believe, he added, that I would be content if you would dwell with me. And Paulinus smiled in answer and said, Aye, it is not good to live alone. 
A little while after, Paulinus said that he must set out on his way, and that he was very grateful for so gentle a welcome. But the priest said, Nay, you must see the sights of my house and of the temple. Few folks have seen it, and never a foreign man. It is not a merry place, he added, but it will do to make a traveller's tale. So he led him to the door, and they went out. Paulinus saw that the house where he had spent the night stood on a little square island, with a deep moat all round it, filled with water. The island was all overgrown with bushes and tall plants, except that in one place there were some pens where sheep and goats were kept, and a path led down to the landing place where he had crossed it the night before. But what at once seized and held the eyes and mind of Paulinus was the temple. He thought he had never seen so grim a place. It rose above the bushes and above the house. It was a very rough stone, all blank of windows, with a roof of stone. The blocks were very large, and Paulinus wondered how they had been brought there. In front there was a low door, and over it a hideous carving, that seemed to Paulinus to be the work of devils. Apart from the temple, rising among the bushes, stood a rude sculpted figure, with a leering, evil face, very roughly but vigorously cut, with an arm raised as though beckoning people to the temple. This figure, of a kind of reddish stone, seemed horrible beyond words to Paulinus. It seemed to him like a servant of Satan, if not Satan himself, frozen into stone. The priest looked at Paulinus, who could not help showing his horror, with a kind of pride. Then he said, Will you go further? Will you see the temple with me, and see what is therein? Perhaps you will, after all, bow your head to the gods of the forest. And Paulinus said, Yes, I will go. And he said a silent prayer to the Lord Christ, that he would guard him well. Another path, paved with stone, led from the landing place to the temple, along which they went slowly, the priest leading. Arrived at the door, the priest made another strange obeisance, lifting his hands slowly above his head and closing his eyes. Then he opened the door to the temple itself. There came out a foul and heavy smell that shuddered in the nostrils of Paulinus and left him gasping somewhat for breath. The priest looked at him with a sort of curious wonder which made Paulinus determine to go further. The temple itself was large and dark. A sickly light only filtered in through a hole in the roof. The floor was paved and the roof was supported by great wooden columns, the trunks of large forest trees. The greater part of the building was shut off by a large wooden screen about the height of a man close to them, so that they stood in a kind of vestibule. The whole of the building, walls, roof and floor, had been painted at some time or other a black colour, which was now faded and looked a dark slaty grey. Over the screen in the centre was seen the head of what seemed an image, very great and horrible. The light, which came from an opening immediately above the image, showed a horned and bearded head, misshapen and grotesque. Possibly at another time and place, Paulinus might have smiled at the ugly thing. But here, peering at them over the screen, in the fetid gloom, it froze the blood in his veins. 
And now, behind the screen, were strange sounds as well, a kind of heavy breathing or snorting, and what seemed the scratching of some beast. The priest went up to the screen and opened a sort of panel in it, and this was followed by a hoarse and hideous outcry within, half of fear and half of rage. The priest took from an angle of the wall a long pole shod with iron, and leaning within the opening, saying in a stern tone some words that Paulinus did not understand. Presently the noises ceased, and the priest, using a great effort, seemed to pull or push at something with the pole, and there was the sound as of a great gate turning on its hinges. Then he drew his head and arms out, and said to Paulinus, We may enter. Then he threw a door open in the middle of the screen and went in. Paulinus followed. In front of them stood a great statue on a pedestal, the figure of a thing, half man, half goat, crouched as though to spring. The smell was still more horrible within, and it became clear to Paulinus that he was in the lair of some ravenous and filthy beast. There lay a mess of bones beneath the statue. To the left, in the wall, there was a strong oaken door made like a portcullis which seemed to close the entrance of a den. Something seemed to move and stir in the blackness, and Paulinus heard the sound of heavy breathing within. The priest, still holding the pole in his hand, led the way round to the back of the statue. Here, set into the wall, were a number of stone slabs, with what seemed to be a name upon each, rudely carved. The priest pointed to these and said, Those are the names of the priests of the shrine. And now, he went on, I will tell you a thing which is in my mind. I do not know why I should wish to say it, but it seems to me that I have a great desire to tell you all and keep nothing back. And I tell you this, though you may turn from me with shame and horror. We have a law that if a man be condemned to death for a certain crime, if he have slain one of his kin, He is bound to a tree in the forest to be devoured piecemeal by the wolves. But if there seem to be a cause or excuse for the deed that he has done, then he is allowed to purchase his life on one condition. He may come to this place and slay the priest who serves here, if he can, or himself be slain. And if he slay him, he reigns in his stead until he himself be slain. And the rights of this place are these. All of this tribe who may be guilty of the slaying of a man by secret or open violence without due cause are offered here a sacrifice to the god. And that is the task that I have done and must do till I am myself slain. And here in a den dwells a savage beast. I know not its name and its age is very great that slays and devours the guilty. What wonder if a man's heart grows dark and cruel here. I can only look into my own heart, black as it is, and wonder that it is not blacker. But the gods are good to me, and have not cursed me utterly. And now I will tell you, that when I saw you by the pool, and when you called to me in the night, I thought that perchance you would come to slay me. And then I saw that you were alone, and not guarded as a prisoner would be. But even then my heart was dark, because the god has had no sacrifice for many a month and seems to call upon me for a victim. So I had it in my heart to slay you here. And now, he said, I have opened the door of my heart, 
and you have seen all that is to be seen. And then he looked upon Paulinus as if to know his judgment, and Paulinus, turning to the priest, and seeing that in his heart he desired what was better, and abode not willingly in the ways of death, said, Brother, with all my heart I am sorry for you. I would have you turn your heart away from these dark and evil gods, who are indeed, I think, the very spirits of hell, and turn to the Father of mercy, of whom I spoke, with whom there is forgiveness and love for all his sons, when once they turn to him and ask his help. The priest looked very gently at Paulinus as he spoke, but there came a horrible roaring out of the den, and the beast flung himself against the bars as if in rage. Then the priest said, For twenty years I have heard no speech like this. For twenty years I have lived with death and done wickedness, and all men turn from me with fear and loathing, and speak not any word to me. I have never looked in a kindly human eye, nor felt the hand of a friend within my own. Judge between me and my sin. I had a brother, an evil man, who made it his pleasure to trouble me. I was stronger than he, and he feared me. I loved a maiden of our tribe, and she loved me, and when my brother knew it, he went about to do her a hurt, that it might grieve me. One day she went through the forest alone, and never returned, and I, in madness ranging the woods to find her, found the mangled bones of her body. I knew it by the poor, torn hair. She had been devoured by wolves. But burying the bones, I saw that the feet were tied together with a cord, and then I knew that someone had bound her by violence and left her to be devoured. Then, as I returned from burying her, I came upon my brother in a glade of the wood, and he looked upon me with an evil smile and said, Hast thou found her? And I knew in my heart what he had done, and I slew him where he stood, and then I returned and said what I had done. Then they imprisoned me. For my brother was older than myself, and my enemies said that I had done it to win his inheritance. And at last, after long consulting, they gave me the choice to be devoured of wolves, or to become the priest of death. I chose the latter, because I was mad and hated all mankind. I came to this place at sundown, and my guards left me. I swam the ditch and knocked at the priest's door. He was an old man and piteous, who abhorred his trade and there I seized him and slew him with my hands. He was weak and made no resistance, and I flung his body to the beast and carved his name. That is my bitter story, and since then I have lived, accursed and dreaded. These gods are hard taskmasters. He made a wild gesture of the hand and turned his bright eyes upon Paulinus, who stood aghast. The tale is told, said the priest. I, who have kept my silence all these years, have babbled my story to a stranger. Why did I tell you? I thought that with all your talk of mercy and forgiveness, you might have a message for my bitter and tired heart. But you shrink from me, and are silent. Nay, said Paulinus, shrink from you? Not so. Nay, I cling to you more than ever. Come and claim your part in the forgiveness that waits for all. You have suffered, you have repented, and the God whom I serve has comfort and peace for you, and for all. His love is wide and deep. Claim your share in it. And he took the priest's hand in both of his own. There was a horrible roaring behind them as they stood. The great beast behind them struck at the bars, but the priest took no heed. 
If I could, he said, with his eyes fixed on Paulinus's face. Nay then, said Paulinus, if you would, it is done already, for he reads the very secrets of the heart. There broke out a loud, fierce, crashing sound behind them. The great oaken door gate had heaved and splintered, and a monstrous beast, as huge as a horse, appeared in the mouth of the den. His small head was laid back on his hairy shoulders, his little eyes gleamed wickedly, and his red mouth opened snarling fiercely. The priest turned and met the rush of the beast full. In a moment he was flung to the ground with a dreadful rending sound. Save yourself! he cried. The huge brute glared with his foot upon the fallen form and seemed to hesitate whether to attack his second foe. Paulinus, hardly knowing what he did, seized the great iron-pointed pole and with a firmness of strength which he had not known himself to possess, drove it full into the monster's great throat as it opened its mouth towards him. It made a wild and sickening cry. It raised one foot as though to strike, then it beat the air and struck once at the head of the prostrate form. Then, with a gurgling sound, spitting out a flood of hot blood, it collapsed, rolled slowly on one side. Paulinus, watching it intently and still holding the pole, thrust it further in with all his might. It quivered all over and in a moment lay still. Paulinus made haste to drag the priest out from beneath, but he saw that all was over. The last blow of the beast had battered in the skull, and besides that the body was horribly mangled and crushed. The limbs of the priest were heavy and relaxed. His hands were folded together as though in prayer, and he drew one or two little fluttering breaths, but never opened his eyes. Paulinus was like one in a dream at this sudden horror, but he kept his senses. Once or twice the great beast moved, and drummed on the pavement with a horny paw. So Paulinus drew the prostrate body of the priest outside the screen and closed the door. Then he went with swift steps out of the temple and to the water's edge, He drew up a little water in his hand, looking into the dark and cool moat. Then he came back with a purpose in his mind. He sprinkled the water on the poor mangled brow, and then, choosing the name of the apostle whom Jesus most loved, he said, John, I baptize thee, in nomine, etc. It was like a prisoner's release. The straining hands relaxed, and with a sigh the new-made Christian presently died. I doubt I have done right, said Paulinus to himself. He was coming to the Saviour very swiftly, and I think was at his feet, and if he was not in heart a Christian, the Lord will know when he meets him in the heavenly places. When Paulinus went back to the hut, he found a rough mattock. First he dug a great hole. The earth was black and soft, and water oozed soon into the depths. Then, with much painful labour, He dragged the great beast thither, and covered him in from the eye of day. And then he toiled to dig a grave for the priest. Once he stopped to eat a little food, but he worked with unusual ease and lightness. But the night came down on the forest as he finished the grave, for he did not wish that the priest should lie within the dreadful temple. Then he went back, very weary but not sad. His terrors and distresses had drawn off slowly from his mind. 
As he worked in the still afternoon under the clear sky, all surrounded by woods, the earth seemed like one who had come from a bath, washed through and through by the drench of wholesome rains, and the smell of the woods was sharp and sweet. Paulinus slept quietly that night, feeling very close to God, but in the morning, when the dawn was coming up, he was awakened by a shouting outside. His sleep had been so deep and still that he hardly knew at first where he was, but it all came swiftly back to him, and then the shouting was repeated. Paulinus rose to his feet and went slowly out. On the edge of the water, where the causeway crossed it, he saw two men standing that from their dress seemed to be great chiefs. Behind him, with his hands bound and attached by a rope held in the hand of one of the chiefs, was a young man of a wild and fierce aspect, in the dress of a serf, a rough tunic and leggings. His head was bare, and he looked around him in dismay, like a beast in a trap. Behind, at the edge of the clearing, stood four soldiers silent, with bows strung and arrows fitted to the string. Over the whole group, there seemed to be the shadow of a stern purpose. At the appearance of Paulinus, the two chiefs hurriedly bent together in talk, and looked at him with astonishment. Paulinus came down to the water's edge, when one of the chiefs said, We have come for the priest. Where is he? For he must do his office upon this man, who hath slain one of his kin by stealth. It is too late, said Paulinus. He is dead, and waits for burial. Then the chiefs seemed again to confer together, and one of them, with a strange reverence, said, Then you are the new priest of the temple? And yet it seems strange, for you are not of our nation. Nay, said Paulinus, I am a wanderer, a Roman. It was not I who slew him, it was the great beast who lived in the den yonder. And the beast have I slain, but come over and let me tell you the tale. So he made haste to put out the bridge, and the two chiefs came over in silence, leaving the prisoner in the hands of the guards who surrounded him. Paulinus led them to the temple, which he could hardly prevail upon them to enter, and showed them the dead body, which was a fearful sight enough. Then he showed them the broken gate and the empty den. And then he led them to the mound where the beast lay buried, and offered, if they would, to uncover the body. Nay, we would not see him, said the elder chief in a low voice. It is enough. Paulinus then led them to the hut and told them the story from beginning to end. The chiefs looked at him with surprise when he told them of the beast's death, and one of them said, I doubt, sir, you slew him by Roman magic, for he was exceedingly strong, and you look not much of a warrior. Nay, said Paulinus, smiling, I doubt he was his own death, as is often the end of evil. He leapt upon the pole, I did but hold it, and the Lord made my hand strong. When he had done the story, the chiefs spoke together a little in a low tone. Then one of them said, This is a strange tale, sir. It seems to us that you must be a man whom the gods love, for you stayed here a night with the priest, who was a fierce man and no friend of strangers, and received no hurt. And then you have slain the hound of death, unarmed. But we will ask you to go with us, for we cannot decide so grave a matter until we have taken counsel with our tribe. Be assured that you will be used courteously. I will go very willingly, said Paulinus, 
my God did indeed send me hither to do a work which he had prepared for me to do, and I would serve his will in all things. So they first buried the body of the priest in his grave, and then they went together to the village, and messages were sent to the chiefs of the tribe, who came in haste, ten great warriors, and they sat and debated long in low voices. And Paulinus sat without wondering that he could feel so calm, for he knew that he was in jeopardy. So when they had talked a long while, they called Paulinus into the council. And the oldest chief, an ancient warrior with silver hair, much bowed with age, told him that they saw that he was a man favoured of God. I hide it not from you, he said, that some of my brethren here would have it that death should be your portion, because you have meddled with sacred and secret things. But I think that it is clear that you have done no wrong, or otherwise you would have been slain. You spoke now of the God you serve, and we would hear of him, for now that the priest is dead and the beast dead, we say with reverence that a cloud is lifted from us, and that we have served dark gods too long. So Paulinus spoke of the Father's love and the coming of the Saviour onto the earth, and when he had finished the chiefs thanked him courteously, and then they asked him to abide with them and speak again of the matter. So Paulinus abode there and made many friends, as his manner was. Then came a day when the chiefs again held council, and they told Paulinus that if he would, he should be the priest of the temple and teach what he would there, and that the temple should be cleansed. And they said they would not ask him to be the slayer of such as had killed a man. For that, they said, seems to belong rather to a warrior than a priest. So Paulinus said that he would abide within them, but that first he must go and be made a priest after his own order. And he departed, but soon returned, and the temple of death was made a church of Christians. Paulinus is an old man now. You may see him walk at evening beside the water, under the shadow of the church. The images have been broken and defaced, but Paulinus often stops beside a mound and thinks of the bones of the great beast that lie whitening below. And then he stands beside a grave which bears the name of John, and knows that his brother, that did evil in the days of his ignorance, but that suffered sore, will be the first to meet him in the heavenly country, with the light of God about him. And perhaps, Paulinus says to himself, he will bear a palm in his hand. Hi, I'm Jesse. Hi, I'm Connor. We're going to talk about The Temple of Death by A.C. Benson. I think this was first published in The Hill of Trouble and Other Stories. I think you, you said it was from 1911, but I'm yes. seeing 1903. Um, and that's the book that I got the PDF out of. It doesn't say anything about them being previously published in magazines, but that's entirely possible. There, there were a lot of magazines in in that period and uh we i don't think have access to everything but often they would say if you know at the beginning of a book um i note that the publisher was the same publisher who put out jack london's uh 
The People of the Abyss, the same year, 1903, um, which is another big book. And, you know, Ibister and Companies, not a publisher we know, but back then they had like more than two publishers. (laughs) Um, So there was a lot of good books coming out in 1903. Um, This story is not one I'd read before, and I know you're doing this folk horror thing. So how did you hear about this particular one? Okay, so um, when I was first researching folk horror, the first question that I wanted to figure out was when did these tropes that we see reoccurring in folk horror a lot actually start? What was the first um, stories that had like secret pagan cults? Mm-hmm. Um, and somebody I found online suggested this story, uh, which I was really interested in. Um, because I was like, Ooh, 1911, that's pretty early. Mm-hmm. I was naive at that time because I thought that that was, <laughs> I was like, that must be the very first one. <laughs> oh yeah. Um, which is, is not even close, but, um, uh, I found this one and I thought, okay, 1911, I'll check it out. Um, and it doesn't, there are some folk horror tropes or some of the plots that we see in later folk horror, but this is really kind of a proto form of what we would know as folk horror today Mm. but it has the fingerprints um and uh of the sources and inspirations that would go on to really inspire and create the folk horror genre all over it Mm -hmm. so there's like several i could uh i could point out but that was how i found this story originally Mm -hmm. and you you classified in your uh, your youtube version of this um, there's two kinds of folk horror. You're classifying them as American and, uh, British. And, yep. uh, I, I definitely see that for sure. You get the, uh, what's the wicker man is British folk horror, right? Um, what, mm. what, what is the American folk horror? Okay. So the way I see these, this kind of divide in folk horror is that, um, in England, they are surrounded by evidence of religion that came before Christianity. Mm-hmm. Um, and the difference is that in America, uh, okay, there are the Native American nations mm-hmm. um, with their entire culture, although folk horror doesn't necessarily always concern um, that culture. Like mm-hmm. there is, you know, folk horror with the Wendigo and Skin such. Skinwalkers, yeah. Yeah. But more so if we're talking about um, the kind of like American culture that came from Europe and the uh, what you call it, Puritans or the um, the European migrants mm-hmm. who then came to uh, North America, uh, they were really concerned um, or they existed entirely within a Christian worldview. Mm-hmm. So to them, everything outside of that is demons and devils um, mm-hmm. or witchcraft. Uh, so Nathaniel Hawthorne has a few that I was thinking might qualify. Um, there's one where a guy goes out and lives in a Puritan community and he goes out into the forest and he meets Satan. Young Goodman Brown. uh, Is that young Goodman Brown? Yeah, it could be. Um, there's also one called the minister's black veil. I think that that one is, yeah, it's probably young Goodman Brown. Yeah. yeah, Young Goodman Brown is where um, he discovers that the village he lives in, I think he might even be a uh, – oh, no, he's he's not a priest or anything. but um, He's a devout yeah, he's, Christian, he's, I think. Yeah, very religious. 
and he's uh he's either about to marry or he's just married a young woman who I believe is called Faith. Yeah. Is her name? Yeah, of course. <laughs> Pretty on the nose. Uh-huh. Um, but he goes for a walk in the woods one night, I think, and he sees his beloved signing her name in the book of the devil. Right. Um, and he discovers that everybody else in the village is part of a devil worshiping cult. Um, sounds like a really and, good show. <laughs> and yeah. Yeah. And this was like, uh, if I'm right. Okay. This was definitely in the 1800s, I believe. Yeah. Yeah. Um, it's set, his stuff is always set like about 50 years before. Right. Yeah. So, but yeah. 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 And, but this is, this is a good example of like the difference between English and British, uh, sorry, between like, I guess you, yeah, British, um, and American folk horror mm-hmm. is that like American folk horror is within the Christian worldview. Right. Right. It's not concerned with things that came before or with, uh, Native American religion or culture or stuff outside of it. It's just there is the Christian worldview and there's the devil. And there's people who are in league with the devil mm-hmm. secretly. Um, and there's secret cults or religions that exist under the surface. Um, and that's the difference. And like, shockingly, this stuff even persists to the modern day with like the satanic panic mm-hmm. and all of this fear that, oh, in daycare centers, there's secret Satan worshipers right. who are corrupting the kids and stuff like that. Um, which is, and that's entirely within, yeah, the, the Christian worldview. Mm-hmm. Um, whereas with this story, the temple of death, which I would say is, is British, um, folk horror, mm-hmm. uh, in the sense that it comes from the British Isles. Um, there, this is Paulinus, who is our main character, mm-hmm. uh, is a Christian. He's kind of spreading Christianity or trying to evangelizing, but he comes into contact with the early religion, um, that existed before and outside. Um, and we get some interesting commentary from, uh, from the, I guess, native people, um, in England where they're just like, oh, I, I like your new religion, but you know, it's probably not going to catch on. Right. <laughs> Cause, um, we're in, we're in wild country here and your God has nothing on the gods that exist here. This is a wild place and we need wild gods to survive. Um, so, uh, so this one's firmly in the, this story's firmly in the British folk horror mm-hmm. group. I was thinking, uh, how, you know, Lovecraft sort of spans the, the divide, right? So he has, mm. he has a, it's set in the United States and he certainly has like a story like the lurking, no, not the lurking fear, um, the unnameable. It's, mm-hmm. uh, it's, it's, it's set right within the context of Cotton Mather and, and, uh, the um <laughs> the witchcraft trials and such right but then mm. uh you have other stories where it's these things are older than human humanity it isn't just a um it isn't just a pre-christian thing it's a pre-human thing yeah yeah uh, and so it, it, it and obviously being an anglophile himself he's he's sets a, a number of his stories like the moon bog and such overseas um in order to uh, explore this idea of of the horror from before, in a certain sense, mm. I came across a story I I have read, but it's been a long time uh, since I read it this week, and I was thinking, you know, how similar they are uh, to the one we we just listened to and the one we're discussing now. 
uh, the Temple of Death. And, and there is another story out there called The Temple of Death by somebody else, which I feel like I need to read. But um, this one is uh, by a familiar guy, Robert E. Howard. He wrote a story mm-hmm. called The Lost Race. You know this story? No. Okay. So um, the reason it's not up on the PDF page is I'm missing the table of contents or part of the table of contents. And I just never put it up. But it's a um, it's a story set in uh, Bronze Age uh, U- UK in Cornwall. Um, and it starts very similarly. I'll just read the opening here for you. Koro uh, Rook glanced about him and hastened his pace. He was no coward, but he did not like the, the place. Tall trees rose all about, their sullen branches shutting out the sunlight. The dim trail led in and out among them, sometimes skirting the edge of a ravine where a Kororuk could gaze down at the treetops beneath. Occasionally, through a rift in the forest, he could see a, a way to the forbidding hills that hinted of the ranges much farther to the west that were the mountains of Cornwall. In those mountains, the uh, bandit chief Buruk the Cruel was supposed to lurk, to descend upon such victims as might pass that way. Kororuk shifted his grip on his spear and quickened his step. His haste was due not only to the menace of the outlaws, but also to the fact that he wished once more to be in his native land. He had been on a secret mission to the wild Cornish tribesmen, and though he had been more or less successful... He was impatient to be out of their inhospitable country. It had been a long, wearisome trip, and he had still had nearly the whole of Britain to traverse. He threw a glance of aversion about him. He longed for the pleasant woodlands with scampering deer and chirping birds to which he had, he was used. He longed for the tall white cliff where the blue sea lapped merrily. The forest through which he was passing seemed uninhabited. There were no birds, no animals, nor had he seen a sign of human habitation. His comrades still lingered at the savage court of the Cornish king, enjoying his crude hospitality, in no hurry to be away. But Kororuk was not content, so he had left them to follow at their leisure, and had set out alone. Rather, a fine figure of a man was Kororuk, uh, some six feet in height, strongly though leanly built he was, with gray eyes, a pure Briton, but not a pure Celt. His long yellow hair revealing in him, uh, as in all of his race, a trace of the Belge. Okay, so he goes on um, a little bit, and then he sees a uh, giant cat. So uh, wild, a wild cat or cougar, I think it might be cool. Lion. Lion, um, and a wolf. Mm. And they're right. about to fight, and then he takes a, he picks a team. Uh, now the, it's not the same setup as in there is a, a Christian out to tame uh, the the religious people of Britain, but it is a guy on a mission by himself through his through the forest of of ancient. England. And what's interesting is uh, I'm sure they're comp- they approach it completely different ways, right? Robert E. Howard's is through the lens of race. And A.C. Benson, what's so interesting about this story is you're, you're, you're thinking it's folklore. I think it's Christian, like, it's a Christian fairy tale about how Britain got to become Christian. Right? Oh, yeah. Because we don't really know how that happened. But here is one way it could have happened. Whereas Robert E. Howard is more like, how did Britain come to be peopled? 
by the people who were in it, right? And so they're caught, they're, they both have uh, uh, ancient massive axes to grind. <laughs> but AC Benson mm. is like, it's all about the Christian religion coming to displace the, the, uh, primitive or earlier religion there and then we we see that sort of in a scene it's almost like the difference you know they say about um beowulf where the first half of beowulf is set pre-christian and then the second half of beowulf is when christianity has come to the uh to the land right and so we we don't see that transition exactly but here it's all summed up in one story between one guy and another guy and an ancient tradition. And then his solution is to be Christ-like. Whereas, mm. whereas Robert E. Howard's is it's all about purity, right? And, and so that they're completely different, but they're set in kind of similar period, not exactly, but similar. And they have a different approach. And I was thinking this might be like that, you know, Robert E. Howard completely basically rejects religion. He's not interested in it except as to how it can help tell a story. Whereas I think A.C. Benson is like one of his brothers was a priest, became a Catholic priest, right? Um, ends up. Yeah. Yeah. I'm not sure which one. There's like four of them, right? It was, it was, there's, there's EF, there's R- AC, and, there's, and I think there's also an RC. Yeah. Maybe. And I think it was the RC. And I think he was the priest yeah yeah and um, they were all storytellers and all writers um but they're yeah. definitely they're they're definitely dealing with it like it's an intellectual issue to be solved whereas i think robert e howard's like no 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 no, that's not interesting at all let me tell you about what's really interesting is is the movements of peoples and race mixing because it's race mixing mm. time and they're they're not that far apart right 1927 and 1903 uh, but by 27 the the wave of um of, uh, and obviously they're separated by the ocean. But I thought, I thought that mm. was, it was interesting that the, the way our character, Paulus, is that how we're pronouncing his name? I was saying Paulinus. Paulinus, yeah, that I think, sounds right. I think there's an I in there. Yeah, yeah. Paul, Paul, Paulinus, um, approaches the situation like it's full of danger, right? He knows it's full of danger, but it's like a folk tale where he, he's basically encounters the big bad wolf in disguise. And then says, this is the big bag of wolf in disguise. And then he says, I'm going to approach it like a lamb. And he's mm. wary, but he's willing to be, um, he's willing to be a martyr in a certain sense. So he acts the Christian role. Yeah. And, um, I think you can see it like, um, the difference, uh, I guess between Robert E. Howard and, uh, AC Benson is that really how, good uh the christians come across in this story yeah um like obviously um ac benson i would imagine was a christian and this is part of his values which he's bringing to the story is that uh paulinus is really quite a likable character oh like extremely I, I was, likable. I, if, if you had described him to me like oh he's a christian missionary uh like i'm not religious and mm-hmm. i probably would have that probably would have mm, tainted my opinion of him right I would have said, okay, he's coming to preach and, and change these people's way of lives to what he believes is the right way to live. Um, so I would have been prepared to dislike him, but actually Absolutely. I find him quite a likable character because he does Because he's doing it the right way. So, uh, the character yeah. I was thinking of, uh, or character, a person I was thinking of is, 
guy named Cornell West. Do you know this this American uh, p- political figure? Nope. Okay, so Cornell West is um, he's like a, a a critic of the Democratic Party. He he wants people to be better, <laughs> and he approaches everybody with the same like whenever he, he he critiques everybody and he critiques them in ways that we want them to be critiqued uh, because he's coming at it from the most charitable position possible and one of the things that's so distinguishing about him is no matter who he's talking to um he always calls them my brother or my sister right so i disagree with my brother and and then he t- uh, he'll talk about how Obama's bombing people to death. You know, <laughs> it's like really okay. bad. You shouldn't do that. Um, but he he does it so um, so non confrontationally. Well, he you know he he will call out the horror that they're doing, but he doesn't condemn them as humans. He doesn't condemn them yeah. in the way that this story has a pre Christian ideology, which is you are if you are a murderer. You have two choices. You can become the priest of, of the uh, death cult, or you can be executed. Which would you like? Um, mm. Neither one? Can I have that as an option? Um, and what's so cool about the Christianity that's being presented here is that it's one guy, right? It isn't a whole church yet. It isn't a, a pope and popish armies <laughs> and crowning kings uh, because they're blessed by this and they paid the indulgence taxes or anything like that it's just i read about this guy named jesus i'm a super fan of jesus and i want to care about what he cared about and i'm bringing quote unquote the good news but it isn't good news uh now you're all subject to the church it's good news now you don't have to to rot forever in in the gray lands and notice that the, it's never mentioned like five or six times, but it is mentioned once that it's the gray temple of death, right? Mm. When you die, you go to the gray lands is my thinking there. It's like there is no happy uh, hunting ground afterwards. There is no uh, many mansions with God in this pre-Christian Britain. It's the, um, it's the worst. It's, uh, you know, the best is like Valhalla for the, the the brave and the good and uh sad story hell boredom and uh m- mild discomfort <laughs> forever mm. in the afterlife right um whereas with the promise of christianity he he at the end of the story he is um he converts him post death right the guy's dead and this murderer who wanted to kill him and who wants to hear about his religion because his ain't so great, even though he has a present evidence of God caged up, right? A pre- mm. present evidence of this ancient religion caged up. Uh, and that, you know, it's a long tradition. It's dissatisfactory in a certain sense. And if we can get beyond it to something that's more pleasant, and I mean, who doesn't want peace and love? That sounds good, right? Yeah. So I thought that was really interesting because it isn't, um, it isn't, it's, it's kind of reverse folk horror in a certain sense. He's like, yes. if you think of, you know, the traditional, uh, uh, wicker man, right? <laughs> it's a Christian man who goes to an island full of pagans and finds out that the behavior that they've been presenting to him, uh, was all for a purpose. And that purpose was 
to make him a martyr. Um, but not a martyr that everybody as a Christian can enjoy, but rather one that will fulfill the thing that they need. Um, mm. and it feels like it's awful, right? And it's horrible. Whereas this one, it's like there is this awful, horrible thing that infects the, the island of Britain. And now there is this cleansing, uh, more honest and more, uh, maybe I'm not honest, but it feels like honest, a more, um, liberating or more freeing and more relaxing, <laughs> um, approach to, uh, living your life. Yeah. And, it's a, it's a hopeful, well, yeah. uh, in, in a sense, it, um, I do agree with you. It's like anti Fokora in the sense that it kind of ends up in a better place than it starts off with. Right. Whereas the fundamental, well, one of the things of Fokora is that it's a fear of regression. Right. So like in Wicker Man, the timeless example, right? It's Christianity is, uh, overpowered by these pagan beliefs and Sergeant Howie, who's the main character, is burnt. Uh, spoilers. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, but paganism has won and people have regressed back to an earlier, more brutal religion. Um, and or, or just never, story, never, never, uh, never took up this replacement religion that yep. everyone else took up. They're on this island, exactly. they're separated. And, and this is like a throwback to what we would have seen before everywhere. Exactly. Um, exactly. I, so I think that's a, that's a really good point about how this story because I, I don't think this is um uh yeah it, it's still it's still proto folk horror like it hasn't quite formed into what we would later think of as folk it's horror. definitely um, connected right it's connected yeah. in the sense that it's showing us what like uh i think you mentioned the movie called the ritual or a book called the ritual which i, I saw the movie um which is set in norway where some hikers go and they discover uh Yes. Loki, <laughs> essentially, it, caged up. Or in, something. in a way, a similar beast to this story. Yes. Yes. And one that's, um, um, it's, it, it's being worshipped kind of like a, as a duty rather than mm. being worshipped as a, um, like a tax. Yeah. 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 Uh, uh, yeah. So on the, um, on the note, I was just thinking about this idea of, uh, Hmm. About this being an anti-folk horror, like you said. In um, like I recently watched the documentary. Um, is Days Dark and Woods Bewitched? Mm-hmm. No, Woodlands Dark and Days Bewitched, or something like that. Mm-hmm. Um, which was this documentary about folk horror, and um, there was a guy in it called Howard David Ingham, um, who's written a book that is called We Don't Go Back, and I haven't actually read the book. It's been on my list for a while. Uh, like a lot of books, but in the documentary, he was just speaking about folk horror and, um, the book is called, we don't go back because, um, which is taken as a line from a movie, but the thesis is that folk horror is all about that fear of regression into more superstitious, um, times, less civilized, mm-hmm. uh, less charitable, less safe, um, Where there, there is no covenant with God, right? That, yeah, no. That, the point of that, chaos. S- that story, um, I have a lot of uh, 
recent, uh, relatively recent Christian converts uh, as my students. Um, mm-hmm. uh, that is to say, their ancestors were recently converted because they're from Korea, and Korea had a lot of um, uh, recent Christianity coming, like in the 20th century. So they're they yeah. have their they're sort of tied to the biblical stories in a way that a lot of North Americans no longer are. Um, you know, they know that there's these stories and such, but like, um, I have a lot of students who are named like Isaac, <laughs> that sort of thing, right? Right. So Abraham and Isaac, the story of that is, this is saying, this is like God saying, I ain't like the other gods. I'm, I want you to do human sacrifice, Isaac. Let's do this thing. And then, uh, or Abraham. And so he ties up Isaac, takes him to the top of the mountain, and and Abraham, Abraham's like, come on, son, we're going for a walk. And Isaac's like, what? Where are we going, Dad? Why are you tying me up? And they get up there, and then G, G, he's coming down with the uh, Isaac's Abraham's coming down with a knife on top of the mountain. Uh, altar's all set up, and then God's like, J.K. <laughs> yeah, hold it, hang on, <laughs> hang on. I was just kidding. It was your faith that I was testing, and you passed. Now, no more human sacrifice. No more. Literal Holocaust, that's what the word comes from, right? The burnt offerings. We don't need that anymore. Mm. What we need instead mm. is for you to understand. And this is why it's so such an important story for Christians, is it's like this is the Christ is the fulfillment of the promise of the uh Old Testament, right? There's this Old Testament God, and you guys aren't ready for this, but eventually you will be, and now here comes the fulfillment. His name is Jesus. And he has a message for you, and it's good news. You get to mm. live forever. You just have to be good. And uh, I'm the prince of peace, not the prince of, you know, uh, uh, vengeance and judgment. Mm-hmm. And that um, is a kind of liberation when it's done individually by a person who who really likes the story, like Cornell West, who is like, he is the vigorous christian who you want to convert to christianity to because he he it's like he thinks spider-man is a real guy and that with great power comes great responsibility right? um and if you think that wait, spider-man wait. spider-man was a real guy um and you think that th- that idea that people who have power should be a greatly responsible then you want to act like spider-man right you everyone who follows the church, not the church teachings, the the stories of Christ and understands them the way Cornel West does, wants to be a Christian because they that's a good story, right? There's this guy who came here to um, teach us the error of our ways, you know, let he who is without sin cast the first stone. The point of that story is nobody's without sin, right? Yeah. So it's not your place to uh, be cruel, that's not or our judgmental. job. Yeah, so we yeah. have to have this sort of second layer of thinking and the talking in parables, and eventually we we can come to a sort of a heaven on earth, uh, heaven towards our brothers and sisters on the planet, and that sounds really nice, right? And that's yeah. that's why we like Paulinus. Is that his name, Paulinus? Yep. Uh, so much because he is that. He embodies that. He's confronted by a guy who is essentially a murderer. And who is afraid of being murdered and so is more incentivized to kill people because he's afraid of being murdered at all times. And mm. he's, he, he's 
treats him with respect and uh, wants to hear his story and doesn't offer him violence and instead offers him a hand of friendship and a hand of comfort. And it ends up with him being converted and forgiven in a certain sense, right? Mm. Transmuted from a poison, poisonous, evil religion into a beautiful and gentle religion. It's, it, it is almost like it's, it's, uh, the answer to Foucault's cynicism about human nature or worries yes. about human nature, right? Yep. It is that humans can, uh, be better, can ascend or develop or become something more than just, uh, a violent nature. Right. A man against pro- man, can, beast against beast. Yeah. And you know, they, like, um, this priest is stuck in this cycle of violence yes. because, to become the priest, you have to murder the old priest. Um, and it's, you know, it's similar to, um, cycles of violence in, in real life yep. or of trauma in real life, but there's a breaking of that cycle here, right? Yeah. Where the turning in the other cheek instead of, instead mm. of the, you know, eye for an eye. It. Yeah. And, uh, and, you know, and the monster is dead and buried. And then I, believe at the end they're like you know what we're not going to have any more priests on this island or they turn it into a christian school they right? turn it into a christian school and so that the yeah. foundation the foundation of the church is on the bones of the old dead religion that nobody really liked yeah. anyways right yeah. <laughs> it was just well, what was we had yes it yeah. was our way of dealing gotta... with with violence yeah and also just the um this bloody big monster that He's going to kill people. Yeah, that, that's really interesting because it is. It, uh, there's one way I was thinking of the story is when our um, our priest of death tells his own story and has our hero listen to it. Um, he says, "I I killed my own brother, right?" And he tells mm. the explanation as to why his brother was cruel to him and killed his his girlfriend, right? Um, and and I thought, oh, that's the story of uh, Cain and Abel, right? The, the brother killing the other brother. And then, um, what happens in the Cain and Abel story is Cain is marked by God. I think, no, it's and Abel's, cursed. Abel, Abel's marked by, I don't, one of them is marked no, it's by, Cain. is it Cain? It's the mark Cain. of Cain. Yeah, mark of Cain. You're right. So Cain is marked yeah. by God and he is, he, the mark isn't, um, you know, go and kill this guy. It's the opposite. It's, um, he is under my protection. Um, but, when he's walking the streets, everybody said that's the guy who killed his brother, right? Mm. He's been he's been set aside from society, and so he is isolated. And that's exactly what happens to the temple priest: is he has been isolated from the society, he's been shunned, and given a choice: execution or murder. <laughs> Which do, mm. you're already a murderer. You're already a, somebody who should be shunned. Would you care to continue that path? Or there's no option for forgiveness. There's no option for redemption. There's no option Mm. for, you know, reparations. It's uh, continue down the path of of horror um, and live in fear of death at all points. Or uh, just have it over with now. Which would you like? Mm, Don't really like either option. (laughs) But the one I like most. Yeah, here (laughs) And here comes Christianity to save the day. Yeah. Um, and uh, like you said before, I think um, the difference is 
with a more Christian uh, sort of worldview, even though like I'm not religious, I like this aspect, mm-hmm. which is that you are no, you're never a bad person. You're never beyond redemption, but you ha- can do bad things. Right. Right. But inside you, you're, you are still a redeemable human being who that's deserves right. respect. That's right. Um, and that's potentially the difference between these, the two worldviews, because the priest of the temple, uh, is, is seen as irredeemable hmm. in the in the this earlier religion. He is uh, a, just cursed now, and he's a pariah, and, and, he, shunned, he's been, and he can never do anything our, to come back from. Our that. hero is warned specifically against seeing him. Right? Do not yeah. go into the forest because there is a a guy there who is a murderer and very dangerous, and you do not want to see. And at a certain point we know like why is he doing this what we we should know who this is and then the character says i know who this is and then he says uh would you like to would you like to know more would you like to step through the the door and we say no (laughs) and he says Mm -hmm. yes Mm. and he's afraid and yet he always says yes to all of these things because he's always reaching out and that's that's the purpose of his mission unlike this you know War, a war mission that's in the lost race by Howard, where, you know, it's, it's about secret alliances and, you know, how we're going to form history and who's going to be triumphant and which race succeeds which race and what r- racial qualities are important. It's not about that at all. It's about a reaching out to those who are mistaken, are making a mistake and saying, brother, let me show you the way. Right. And mm. he says, at one point, he says, I, I would like for you to live with me for a time. Um, and I'm like, Oh, that sounds dangerous. <laughs> mm. And, and what does he say? He says, I will. Right. And this is, we don't see the emotional change on the other character. Right. We don't see inside his head, but we see his behavior. And ultimately we come to realize, Oh, this is g- gratitude. This is relief. This is. Uh, relaxation and um, uh, almost grace. Yeah. And he, and he says, and he has- well, you haven't seen the real me yet. Let me show you what's on this, uh, you know, out of the fog on this island. And the, his behavior at the beginning when he comes into the forest and he sees this, uh, you know, the plank and it's all foggy and shrouded and it's dark. And it's like, these are a series of horrors that are going to be revealed to us and the ultimate revelation is there is this monster literal mm. monster caged up and it has little eyes and it's uh, it's as big as a what is a horse yep and, and it has, uh, yeah and when it dies it's almost like that's the end of that we can find another way now yeah and presumably like it's sort of a bizarre God, I don't know whether you'd even call it a God or just a beast or whatever it is. Um, but presumably it's like no animal we know. So it's a one of a kind. Yeah. Do you have the description handy? Cause it sounded to me, it sounded like pan. <laughs> yes. Well, the other thing I was going to compare to was there's, um, uh, there is a, idol in the temple which we first see which is described as being half goat half man right uh and um and i think there's a similar description of this this animal i will um pull up 
see that I can find it. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> I have, while you're digging that out, I have um, a book um, called uh, The Guide to the Super... Uh, you should probably have this book. I should send you a copy. Guide The Guide to Supernatural Fiction. This is by uh, E.F. Blyler, or Everett F. Blyler, who did two massive surveys of science fiction and uh, fantasy slash weird fiction. Um, mm. These are like, uh, how many pages in this book? Uh, <laughs> hundreds of page books, you know, uh, let's see, I'm on page, oh yeah, 729 pages. Uh, densely typed um, story summaries. Um, there's no pictures, it's just bare, bare uh, story summaries, and he goes through basically everything under the sun. Um, for The Hill of Trouble and other stories, he had this to say. The Temple of Death, Paulinus, an early Christian, becomes acquainted with the priest of a temple reminiscent of Anemi, N-E-M-I, and I think you might know who that is. Um, the pagan priest uh, spares Paulinus, and Paulinus kills the Hound of Death. Uh, that's sort of right about what happens, although the way the the, the Paulinus puts it, he merely held the spear and it killed itself, right? And I think that that is supposed to be symbolic too, <laughs> mm. right? It's it's not that he killed the old religion. Uh, it's not that Christianity killed the old religion. It's in the face of Christianity, the old religion killed itself. Mm. And what's interesting about that is that kind of fits the facts um, better uh, for for I mean. Well, perhaps it fits the facts. We don't really know how Christianity came to Britain, right? We know that it came from the, from Rome. And in the death of the Roman Empire, it becomes, you know, the de facto religion of all of Europe and it comes later to the northern parts than it does to the s- southern parts. And, mm-hmm. and it goes a little slower to the east than it does to the, to the west, right? But uh, there were no, like, um, as far as we know, there were no uh, residential schools where children were taken away from their parents who practiced the pagan religion and taught, uh, you know, disabused of their language. And for like, that's how it was done in North America, right? Uh, the mm. natives, the Indians I know here, um, they're Catholics because they were taken away from their parents who had whatever uh, spiritual beliefs they had. And were not able to teach them to their children, and they became Catholics by default. Um, mm. And that, so that was like a a more it, maybe maybe it's just because it's so recent we know how it was done. But with this ancient period, we we get the sense like we have stories about how um, uh, what's the guy Ragnar Lodbrok, right? The guy from the show oh, Vikings, yeah. who's a real sort of historical semi quasi historical figure. Um, how he became a Christian, right? It's like, okay, you get to have, you get to be the, uh, own Normandy, but, uh, we need one thing from you. You gotta be Christian so you won't kill us anymore. And they're like, yeah, 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 that's fine. <laughs> oh, yeah. And then they're sort of half Christian and half, uh, worshiping Thor, right? And then hmm. time goes by and the Thor worshipers are fewer and farther between and eventually they're just, you know, regular old Christians or whatever. And then there's a, yeah. there's a divide. So we have a story there, but 
this is like a fairy tale for that because that that beast is the old religion in this story, mm. right? It's something that they literally have to fear. And and what's interesting is the way we read it as as the story is coming to us on the page or in the audiobook is we don't know what the priest knows, right? So we don't know why he's acting the way he is. How oh. but eventually we learn that all the things that he's been doing, his fears, his his worries about about who this guy is and what he's there for um are legitimated and then the fear that you know your religion sounds really nice and everything but i got something in the back room that scares the shit out of me <laughs> yeah yeah um what are we going to do about that and then the when he he says you know I, I i would really like to convert to your religion um that's when the beast breaks out of its cage right that it's been stuck mm. in and sort of minimized and put on this island this, isn't the island square? I was like, why is the it's, island it's, square? Um, well, I assumed that it was just a, it was a man-made island. Yeah. So they were like, they dug a moat around it and this was just. Ah, how they did it. moat. Uh, yes. Yeah. Was that it makes more sense. It is. That. I think it says square. And I was thinking, that's weird. But the island's pretty big because it's got pens. It's got a temple. It's got his hovel. Yeah. And it's got all these, uh, we, we get a description of the weapons and there's some weapons that Paulinus doesn't recognize. Like maybe they're ancient weapons or mm. they're like from uh, far away in time or space. Um, there's weapons he recognizes. And the, and the one he finally puts down when he's like, okay, this I'm not going to kill you. You're not going to kill me. Have some venison. Uh, he puts down a club, right? A very basic, simple mm. hit you over the head <laughs> with it, which is the opposite of the Christian thing right it's not that there's this sky god who gets angry sometimes and throws down thunderbolts it's there's this god who gave gave a half man uh half god to be sacrificed so that there wouldn't be sacrifice anymore it's a, it's a, like a sophisticate right mm. it's like a much more sophisticated weapon or a much more sophisticated uh religion uh, so it has some like story attraction it's simple, and yet, uh, when you hear, well, how strong can your God be if he, if he, if he died on a, on a wooden stick? That doesn't sound very strong. Ah, uh, but you see, he, he did it so that there wouldn't have to be sacrifices anymore. Uh, huh, mm. that's interesting. I don't have to sacrifice anymore? No, no, you just need to give obedience to that guy over there with a, with a big fish hat. <laughs> Uh, so, fish hat. Yeah, the Pope. He has a fish hat. The Pope. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, because mm -hmm. is it shaped like a fish? <laughs> well, is that why it's shaped like that? Yeah. Or yeah. Oh, right. Yeah, it's got that okay. opening. It's like a fish hat. It's a symbol of ancient symbol of Jesus, right? The fish. Yes, yeah. The fish. Um, <laughs> yeah. Interesting. That is, uh, yeah, a very interesting interpretation of the story because it. Makes a lot of sense. Um, I think it is supposed compare. to be like that. It's supposed to be like a like a fairy tale. It does. It, it doesn't. It doesn't read like a fairy tale. But the fact that it it has that sort of fairy tale structure seems to lend support to it. And it it's not something that like he's asking us to believe. There's archaeological. There's no like. There's no. Um, uh, you know, you could have done it the way. Um, William Hope Hodgson do, does it, right? Manuscript found in a bottle or something, right? Like, mm. Yeah, you know, or found in an old abandoned house. 
There's none of that. There's no scroll being uncovered and there's nested narrative or anything like that to lend legitimacy. It's just straight up. There's this guy. He's a Christian. He's walking through the forest. And it, it has this, um, it has that fairy, fairy tale sort of, uh, timeline in the sense that it starts off. We got Paulinus. He's doing his crap. But then at the end, it's just like it goes, jumps to right to him as an old man. Right. Right. So in terms of the narration, it's not, um, for most of the story, it's kind of like a one to one. Like we're just seeing him as he goes mm-hmm. along. This happened. This happened. It was the next day. And he lived then, happily ever after is how it ends. Exactly. Right? It jumps right to the end. So we, uh, this omnipotent, uh, oh, sorry, well, omnipotent. Mm. We see everything as the, omniscient, as the reader, omniscient, point omniscient yeah. yeah, as the, as the uh, reader of the story. So it does have that idea of a fairy tale. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think also, so here's the description of the beast that I found it. Um, and it is very vague. I remembered it being more, maybe I'm missing another part of the description, but, um, the description is, a monstrous beast, as huge as a horse, appeared at the mouth of the den. His small head was laid back on his hairy shoulders. Mm. His little eyes gleamed wickedly, and his red mouth opened, snarling fiercely. So, we almost have no really distinct mm-hmm. characteristics. It could be a lion. It could be a giant wolf. It could be, a, I don't know, it could a bear. Could be a giant man, something. right? Yeah, or something completely different. Um, so, and that also feels kind of fairy tale-ish mm-hmm. in that it doesn't quite matter the specifics because this is just a beast right mm-hmm. it's up to your imagination exactly what it looked like um and you said it kind of reminded you of pan well yeah the, um, the i think it was this the there was a series of like a rough hewn uh, things as we, it, it's, it's like we go through a, a series of gates, right? First, there's the, mm. the forest itself is a kind of, uh, you go into the forest and you can't see things. Then he, he encounters the priest, right? But then he goes away and then he comes back again. Um, and, and there's this bridge or this temporary, yeah, uh, drawbridge, right? <laughs> then he literally has to uh, cross and then we go into his house. And then we go in, we see the rest of the place where there's like fenced area for the sheep and, and then there's this, this, uh, final area, the temple. And inside mm. the temple, there's, uh, there is some, uh, carven image, right? And do you have that? I got the quote here. Yeah. In, f- in front of them stood a great statue on a pedestal. That's the one. The figure of a thing, half man, half goat, crouched as though to spring. That's and that's that's got to be Pan or you know something wow. like it, right? Let me send you this image if I can. Yeah, um, and, and it's really interesting the way um, all the stuff in the beginning of the story is interpretable through the end. Mm. Uh, so like uh, who we got? Serenunus is that how we Serenunus. say Serenunus? Serenunus. Uh, well, and so this is just why the um, the idea of the half man, half goat. Um, right. This is what occurred to me: is the horned god, which is a kind of reoccurring figure, sure. which is just a, a man with horns. Um, yeah, uh, and there's uh, the, the, we see him in in Shakespeare's uh, Mary Wives of Windsor. Oh, okay. Um, uh, he's also. Oh, you talking about Hearn the Hunter? Hearn, yeah. 
Yes, yeah, yeah. So similar, ex- exactly the same kind of figure. And a lot of people say, okay, so, and the hunter is sort a, of yeah, the green man except uh, with horns instead of leaves. Yes, yeah, and um, you know, and and Pan like is similar as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, this idea of like the merging um, of man with his probably primary prey, which was a, uh, I would suppose deer, which have antlers, right? Um, or maybe goats. Um, uh, so, but anyway, this is what it reminded me of. Mm-hmm. And I think it's interesting that like we have a Roman, like because our actual knowledge about the kind of pre-Christian religion in England mm-hmm. or Britain in general is murky a lot of the time. Yep. Um, to I thought say it was the least, yeah. In, yeah. In this story, a lot of the pre-Christian stuff is really based on Roman <laughs> culture mm-hmm. and religion um the pre-christian roman religion and so on but it's kind of undeniable and when we see um the half man half goat it seems to be really clearly uh pan mm-hmm. um a pan-like figure um so i didn't want to cut you off but on this particular like train of thought i mm-hmm. do have some interesting stuff to talk about so um go for it Okay, um, so uh, as you may know, um, there's this book called The Golden Bough mm-hmm. yeah, by yeah. Sir James Fraser, which was originally published in 1890, uh, or the first edition of it, um, and it caused a big stir, and everyone liked it. It was a study of comparative mythology, so comparing different um mythology from around the world and looking for similarities and sort of themes. Um, anyway, uh, it was important for the time and the priest in this temple, um, where the process by which the priest, uh, by the, by which the priest, one priest succeeds the old priest um, which is they, they murder them and take their place, mm-hmm. reminded me of something in The Golden Bough. Um, so this is in The Golden Bough, and it's describing the priesthood of Diana, of the Roman goddess Diana, mm-hmm. who was the nature of, uh, who, who was the goddess of nature and hunting. Um, <clears throat> okay. Um, in this sacred grove, there grew a certain tree round which at any time of the day and probably far into the night, a grim figure might be seen to prowl in his hand. He carried a drawn sword and he kept peering warily about him as if at every instant he expected to be set upon by an enemy. He was a priest and a murderer and the man for whom he looked was sooner or later to murder him and hold the priesthood in his stead. Such was the rule of the sanctuary a candidate for the priesthood could only succeed to office by slaying the priest and having slain him, he retained office till he himself was slain by a stronger or a craftier. So that is how, according to the golden bow by Sir James Fraser, you become a priest of Diana. Mm -hmm. Um, and that is literally no joke on the very first page. Mm -hmm. Chapter one, the King of the wood, Diana and Virbius. Um, 
of the Golden Bough, right? Mm-hmm. So my kind of idea was if AC Benson had was interested in folklore or mythology and he maybe read the Golden Bough because mm-hmm. it was kind of like a big hit at the time, he could have read the first page and got this idea for how the priest um the priesthood might work in in uh this pre-christian britain um and he's using that in this story but the irony being is that we have a christian roman <laughs> who's going to to uh britain and he and the religion as portrayed in britain at the time is really based on roman religion mm-hmm. So it's kind of like an ironic cyclical thing. Yeah, um, yeah. I, I, I always wonder. We don't, we don't really know much about pre-Roman Britain's religions, right? We know what Caesar yeah. says. He says they got these guys. Uh, they, uh, they like Old druids. Yeah, they like sickles and harvesting uh, oak, oak uh, moss or whatever it is. <laughs> and mm. and then people say yeah, that's important, and they. Revive Druidism, right? But it's just like that song from, uh, what's that, um, musical group, uh, that goes to 11? Oh, um, Spinal Tap. Spinal Tap, right? They have a song about the Druids, and it's just basically the song yeah. is Nobody Knows. <laughs> They're yeah, strange. Yeah. Nobody knows what they do in the forests. Um, yeah. so, uh, this, yeah, in the, um, uh, E.F. Lyler description it says become acquainted with the priest of the temple reminiscent of Nemi. So this actually is backing up your stuff independently. Mm-hmm. So Diana of Nemi, also known as Diana of the Wood, was an italic oh. form of the goddess who became Hellenized during the 4th century BC and conflated with Artemis. Her sanctuary was to be found on the northern shore of Lake Lem- Nemi, which is part of Rome. Um, and it has this idea that, uh, so I'll, I'll read the, according to the legend here, according to one of the several Hellenistic foundational myths, the worships of De- Diana at Nemi would have been instituted by Orestes, who after killing Thoas, king of the Tauric Chernusis, the Crimea, fled with his sister Iphigenia to Italy, bringing with him the image of the Tauric Diana, hidden in a mound of sticks. Now, Tauric, T-A-U-R-I-C, uh, makes me think of uh, the horns, right? Taurus. Uh, after his death, the myth has it that his bones were transported from Aresia t- to Rome and buried in the front of the Temple of Saturn. Uh, the bloody ritual which legend described to Tauric Diana is familiar to classical readers. It was said every stranger who landed on the shore was sacrificed on her altar, but that when transported to Italy, the rite of human sacrifice assumed a milder form. And then it talks about the qualities of the temple. The temple of Diana Nemorinesis, that's the Nemi, uh, was preceded by a sacred grove, which we have here, right? The forest, in which there mm-hmm. stood a carved cult image, which we have here. The temple was noted by Vitruvius as being archaic and Etruscan in form. Um, I'm not sure how that applies here. Uh, but it was, it was, um, Basically, the same ideas that this, this is a place where, uh, you have somebody go to their danger, right? It's like Diana is the goddess of the hunt, but mm. she's, uh, her priestess will hunt you. And so in the story, 
Um, I have, this is on page 13 of the PDF version I made. Um, uh, I think it's page 13 of 36. Um, after the meal, the man asked him to tell him something of the new faith, and Paulinus very willingly told him, by the way, his name, Paul, Paulinus, it's a mm-hmm. very biblical name. Um, mm. it's a transformation on the road, blah, blah. Uh, uh, anyways, very willingly told ah. him, uh, as a simply as he could, the way of Christ, and that's capital W, capital C. The man listened with a sort of gloomy attention. So it is this, he said at last, which is taking hold of the world. Well, it is pretty enough. A good faith for such as live in the ease and security for women and children in fair houses. But it suits not with these forests. The God who made these great lonely woods and who dwells in them is very different. He rose and made a strange obeisance as he talked. He loves death and darkness and the cries of strong and furious beasts. There is little peace here for all that the woods are still, uh, all, all that the woods are, are, all that the woods are still. And as far for love, it is of a brutish sort. Nay, stranger, the gods of these lands, these lands are very different and they demand very different sacrifices. They delight in the sharp woes and agonies, in grinding pains, in dripping blood and death sweats, and cries of despair. If these woods were all cut down and the land plowed up and peaceful folk lived here in quiet fields and farms, then perhaps your simple, easygoing God might come and dwell within them. But now, if he came, he would flee in terror. And then this is the turning point. Nay, said Paulinus, but somewhat sadly, for the man's words seemed to have a fearful truth about them. The Father, capital F, waits long and is kind. The victories of love is slow, but it is sure. It is slow enough, said the man. These forests have grown here beyond the memory of man, and they will stand long after you and I have been turned to a handful of dust. And so I will serve my gods while I live, but you are weary, he added, and may sleep. Fear not any hurt from me. And as for the way you speak of, well, I will say that I should be content if it had victory." I am sick at heart of the hard rule of these gods, but I am, I fear them and will serve them faithfully till I die. So to me, I think this is like the, po- the point where like he says, you know, go to sleep. Uh, it was a nice story. I wish it were true. Um, and then they sleep on it, right? <laughs> mm. <laughs> and mm. in the morning, um, he's like, you know, you seem like a really nice guy. I'd like you to live here with me. Um, and he does. And I thought, oh, that's weird. How long are they going to live together? And it's like just a day or a couple days, maybe. And then he says, well, I, mm. I guess I got to be on my way. And he says, well, don't you want to see the scary god in the back back uh, shed? <laughs> and I said, yeah. yeah, yeah, I do. And then they go in there. And that's when confronted this thing that's hidden away on an island, you know, shrouded in, in you know, it it doesn't like being being replaced i think but it's it's no. all externalized that's what's so cool about it is is he's a, it all sounds really nice and it's, and and the way he's describing it it's it's a uh, a good religion for for middle class people with uh, uh you know good incomes <laughs> but yeah, it ain't yeah. for me you don't have real problems that's right like surviving from day to day that's right and the grinding horror of this of this forest um mm. And what's interesting is he's, he's saying, no, no, it's, it's, um, you know, it's tough, but uh, my God is patient and will, 
he, he wants good for you and things will work out in the end. And, and in a sense, they do, right? He's killed by the beast, but he, um, it goes a strange way when the, when the other guys from the tribe show up, right? Say, Hey, we got a new sacrifice for it. Hey, you're not the priest. And he says, Oh, yeah, he's, he's, I'm burying him. And he said, You killed him? You're the new priest. And he said, No, I didn't kill him. Uh, the, the, your God did, right? And they said, oh, mm. this sounds strange. I don't know what we're going to do with this guy here. And are we going to kill him? Are we going to kill you? And he just, he, it said a couple of times, he just goes through the whole story, right? And it's all about the story. It's all about telling the story of, you know, this is how I met him in the forest. And he said this to me and I did that. And I said this and I told him about Jesus. And they're like, wow, this sounds interesting. Um, maybe you should be the teacher uh, and, and replace this temple. And I get the sense that, like, that's, it's, it's all about that. It's, the point of this story is to get to the point where we're, at the end, we're saying this is how Christianity came to make, make its grip in this, on this island. Mm. It, it, it feels like, it, it feels like it is, um, not a, it's like, uh, a way of, solving the question of we have is how did it come to be yeah 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 i can definitely see um yeah what you, uh what you mean it, it, it had never occurred to me to even think of it in that context because um and it, i'd never even really thought about oh how did christianity come to the british isles we we always um, see it like through the lens of like here's some Vikings showing up and it's already Christianized, right? Mm. But it's that's not that's not what that's like a lot later, right? That's a thousand eighty or eight hundred eighty or something, right? And the Christian mm. the Christian religion had already been in in there under Roman Britain. But how did it how did it make it like this this isn't this isn't a colonizer. This is a lone guy, right? And so it is a fiction, certainly. Like, how mm. did he get to Britain? Well, you know, he's there. He's walking through the forest. It is very fair, fair tale-like. It, it's like there's a wandering priest, right? Or a wa- wandering disciple. Mm. And his name is Roman because it's that in us at the end, but it's really, it's Paul. It almost, um, it feels biblical. Yeah. Uh, and I, I, in a way, even just the language of it, right? It, it doesn't quite go as far as the way that like, uh, biblical prose presents itself. Like, you know, there's this very particular style. Um, I don't know whether that's just like the translation, uh, from another language or it's the old English style, mm-hmm. but it almost feels the same way mm-hmm. in this. Well, that's probably um, on purpose and probably partially, you know, because it, and we're hearing it in English. We speak English and this is from a long time ago, but, um, I think it's, uh, you know, I don't think it's an accident. The guy's named Paul in this, right? Yeah. No, not at all. It's a good I, choice. Hadn't, hadn't considered that. So like the, the story of Paul, like that I understand it is, um, he's on the road. Mm-hmm. He is a guy who victimizes Christians in some way or another. I can't remember what, the, what he does. Mm-hmm. Or he, t- he hunts them or he turns them into authorities, but then he has, um, some sort of a religious experience on the road and he, his name was Saul, but he changes it to Paul. Mm-hmm. And then from then on now he's like a, a Christian. Um, 
So he's kind of like the messenger of Jesus in a certain sense, right? And he is right. that transformational character too, because he's a pagan who becomes a Christian. It, yep. it wasn't born into Christianity, right? Yeah, yeah. Or um, if he's not a pagan, he's a uh, he's not a Christian. He becomes a convert. Yeah, is he a disciple? He's an apostle. Oh, apostle. So he's like one of the original fellows. Yeah. Um, so what? Uh, the twelve Christian apostles are yeah, also known as the twelve disciples, right? And yep. so well the. The famous ones are Paul and Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, right? Or maybe mm-hmm. not. <laughs> but the, the bad one is uh, Judas, right? Yep. Um, and so he's um, – what's, what's interesting is, is Judas is forgiven too, right? Um, in the end. Uh, yeah, Gospel of Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. Um, but, but I think Paul is first. I'm not um, – yeah. Here, here's what it says. Although not one of the apostles commissioned during the life of Jesus, Paul, a Jew named Saul of Tarsus, hey, there it is, T-A-R-S-U-S, this connection, uh, claimed a special commission for the post-ascension Jesus as the apostle of the Gentiles. And the Gentiles are the non-Jews, right? To spread Mm. the gospel message after his conversion. And that's actually where the most success there is with Jesus. It's not most Jews become Christians, right? It's rather the other way around. It's non-Jews become Christians. Mm. Um, the, you know, the Greeks specifically, and then through to Rome and, uh, and then the rest of Europe. Um, in his writings, Paul, although not one of the original 12, described himself as an apostle. He was called by the resurrected Jesus himself during the road to Damascus event. So, with Barnabas, he was allotted the role of apostle of the church. Since Paul's claim to have received a gospel not from teachings of the twelve apostles, but solely and directly through personal revelations from post-ascension Jesus, after Jesus' death and resurrection, rather than before, like the twelve, Paul was often obliged to defend his ap- apostic authority and proclaim that he had what he had seen was anointed by Jesus while on the road to Damascus. So, he's more, he's more like a prophet, but in the post- sense right so did did he convert to christianity after jesus had died i think that it's he's i do not know the i'm not a bible expert but uh i didn't go to sunday school or anything i picked it up right um but yeah what, same here i have no clue about it yeah, um, uh, and it's new testament which i'm a little shakier on as well but basically i think mm-hmm. he was he was um contemporaneous but not present Right. Okay. Yep. Hmm. Let's see. Yeah, because I'm, I'm wondering whether there's any, because I suppose they could have called him, like our character in this story, the Temple of Death. They could have called him Solstice. Marcus or something. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 Well, they they could have. Like, why did they? Is there a reason they chose that particular apostle? Ap- sorry, apostle yeah. to name him after? And it doesn't seem like there would be, other than yeah. So I think the reason uh, the reason is is he is, he is the guy who converts other people to non-witnesses, non-people in the neighborhood, uh, mm. you know, who witnessed Christ in life to f- become enthusiastic Christians. Yep. Um, and that, this is actually the sort of the, um, uh, how the Latter-day Saints do it too, right? You, you, before you, um, settle into your regular life, after university or before university, you take a year and you go to foreign lands and try and uh, 
preach the word. And that might just mean showing up and being nice, uh, or it might be showing up, knocking a lot of doors, and you, you do that for a while, and then you return to your society. But the, mm. the point of that is twofold. One, it's so your religion spreads, which is a thing churches seem to want to do mostly. And the other is um, to model the behavior, I think. Um, oh, of of uh, Jesus. Jesus. Or in yeah. this case, uh, Paul, right? Mm. That you have to, that's why it's called the good news. <laughs> you have to spread it. Whereas mm. a Judaism doesn't, you know, there, there are pe- people do convert to Judaism, but there, there's no Jews knocking on doors trying to convert anybody to anything, right? No, it's pretty rare. Well, they're, they're, they just don't do it because it's not part, it's, it's more, oh, go for it. I mean, converting to Judaism is pretty rare. Uh, it's actually, it's, Christianity. it's actually not as rare as you might think, but it, 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 it's, yeah, I mean, I, anytime somebody marries into a Jewish family, it's, it's like often an issue. Um, and same with it Mm. is whatever, um, but it, yeah, it isn't through, uh, um, proselytizing, right? It isn't, um, yeah. And nobody, it's, it's, yeah, it's, it's, it's different, but there's an appeal to it because it is, it is like, uh, Christianity and, uh, Islam, it has a modernness, um, the idea of God not having, uh, to be seen is a, uh, more fitting than thinking about what color armor Thor has, right? Yeah. And there are, there are like lots of taboos about naming God. And that's why he's called God as opposed to Yahweh or whatever, right? You, you don't talk about the true name and Allah mm. just means the one we won't name, <laughs> right? No, it doesn't. Yeah, well, it's 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 the same thing as God, right? It's like w- yeah. we don't give his real name because it's taking it in vain. This is too serious a thing for that, and you know that's why depicting the prophet is the same story. You don't you don't uh, want to denigrate it or nail it down. Let it be to your imagination, right? Yeah, which is um, not, and that's kind of the appeal of. So some churches, if you go to some churches like in, I don't know, Central America, Jesus is embodied on the cross. But a lot of Christian churches in North America, especially non-Catholic ones, they they just have a cross as a symbol with no Jesus nailed to it. Right? Yeah. And the idea there is it's more symbolic and then less – you can imagine Jesus your own way and interpret it your own way. It's more freeing in a certain sense, but – um, it depends on what you're trying to do. I think there's strat, there's sort of like intellectual strategies involved. But what I, what I really like about this one is he has this, um, we're all brothers style of Christianity rather than, uh, we got to go crusade style Christianity and we have to convert mm. the heathen and the slave and you can enslave someone who's not part of your, your religion and all that. It's, it's, uh, the much more Jesus centered Christianity than it is the church-centered Christianity. Mm. But people people like the Catholicism, too. They like the, all the saints and all that stuff. So there's lots of different ways to go. Yeah, yeah. I, you know, the oldness, the art, the, mm. the discipline. Like, a lot of people like uh, monks and, like, the discipline of nunnery, like, self-denial, self-abnegation. Like, that's kind of weird. But a lot of people like that. 
because it's a it's a way to react against materialism. Yep. Yeah. And here we don't get a lot of this guy's in the forest uh, to get gold. <laughs> He's there because he has good news to spread. Um, but it, it literally is news to him rather than um, uh, I got to convince these people to buy something. It's more like, well, the good news is you don't have to do it the old way anymore. Mm. And, and I think that, you know, uh, demonstrating the modeling of the behavior is why, why we like him so much is because he is acting the Christian and not, uh, converting Christians. Converting yes, Christians. Yeah. 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 And that's, uh, that's why I think it works as a really good story. Yes. It would, it would, um, without that, if Paulinus wasn't such a likable character, um, it would, uh, it wouldn't be a very good story. I think it, it, it's, it would be a very strange story. Because yeah, we we wouldn't understand why anything's happening exactly, and we wouldn't see yeah, the would... appeal of the change. Yes, exactly. We see we see the appeal of the change here. Although if it if he wasn't as nice a character, it would um come across very preachy and uh, well, that's judgmental, yeah. I suppose. And it's mm. like I'm curious as to what your new religion is about. And he says, you know, my my way is the way of love and peace among brothers. Oh, mm. that sounds. Not terrible, especially for a guy who's, you know, worried about getting murdered in his sleep every five seconds. <laughs> yeah. Hey, that's another way to go. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> a, new, a whole new, whole new world. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Not being worried about being killed. Um, hey, I really wonder yeah. whether this priesthood of Diana, like, okay, so we have, um, I haven't looked really deeply into it, but that seems like a really insane method of succession, mm-hmm. if in fact... Something like that did exist. Yeah, it could be propaganda. Yeah, yeah, possibly. I think, um, like we were, you're talking about, uh, our knowledge of pre-Christian religion in various places, and and one of them for the big ones, the British Isles, is Julius Caesar's accounts, and uh, and whether they are propaganda or not. Um, and uh, I mean, perhaps equally true. Ironically, a lot of what we know about pre-Christian religions was written by Christians. Right. Um, uh, because other people didn't write it down. They didn't record that kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, so now what we know is seen entirely through a Christian lens. Um, so, and w- when you see stuff like, uh, like this priesthood of Diana, it seems pretty brutal. Um, it doesn't seem like something you'd want to be a part of. The other thing, though, is is we do know that a, like a lot of their, you know, a lot of human lo- history is has been incredibly brutal, right? Like, like it's, yeah. it just is. So you know, the blood eagle, <laughs> that was not yeah. like not yeah. that wasn't fake. That was something that that they did, and and the purpose of it was to wield power, right? To intimidate uh, mm. the way Genghis uh, operated. Right. <laughs> it's like submit or have this happen to you. Oh, okay. Yeah. I have my choice. It's a clear choice. But here it's like, um, people, it, the, the Romans were really, really brutal, right? They are brutal uh, to their slaves and they're brutal in putting down rebellions and, and, you know, mm. and they're ult- like openly and ultimately corrupt, right? Mm. And so, in the face of that, as a, I think this is one of the really cool takeaways of um, 
of Nietzsche is, is that it is a slave religion. It's a religion of slaves because they have nothing and no expectations. So, mm. uh, here's a guy who says your reward is in heaven and that, uh, violence is not the answer, but rather submission, um, to, you know, you, when you are, uh, unjustly injured, you take it like a Christian, <laughs> which means, mm. uh, be, brave in the knowledge that you're going to get to go to heaven and, and God will say, you were right the whole time. Um, and seeing that, can you imagine seeing that as opposed to the snarling, hate, hateful guy uh, witnessing it over and over again? They seem to have a conviction that we don't have. We hope mm. that this sacrifice to our God will will have an effect. And we think it does sometimes, but it do, it's not consistent. Whereas these guys... Their story is an inversion of ours. The, our story is power and brutality dominate. And their story is submission and um, peace and willingness to suffer <laughs> dominate. And mm. it, it like it, it's a judo flip on the mind. And eventually it becomes the official religion, right? And uh, that's a weird, <laughs> weird flex, <laughs> as they say. Yeah. Um, and it's kind of amazing Indeed. Uh, that considering that Christianity is generally speaking such a peaceful religion, or at least the doctrine is the doctrine, I mean, the, the guy was historical, <laughs> the, historical, <laughs> the rationalization is not. And, you know, yeah, the, um, you know, when, when just, uh, was, was Constantine, right? When Constantine, uh, sees the cross in the sky and says, Hey, we're all Christians now. And his troops are like, Oh, okay. I guess, uh, Right. Um, it was, it was sort of, you know, in the move, it was a sort of a politic move and all that, but he's literally leading an army, right? Yeah. This is not a spiritual army of, you know, let's try and be nice to each other. It's a army made up of soldiers with weapons who are killing people. And wasn't part of that, uh, him saying the cross in the sky was like a sign that he's going to win the battle. Yeah. And, vaguely and remember that. yeah. And then, and thence, uh, well, or sort of the story goes and thence the conversion, right? Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. So, like that being all, all of that considered, it is, uh, it is interesting. I think it's, um, like we said before, I do think the Christian worldview is a more healthy, mentally healthy worldview than a lot of other, yeah. uh, like this one, older ones. You've got a murder um, yeah. <laughs> or sacrifice. Yeah, sacrifice. human sacrifice do- um, doesn't seem like uh, that cool, right? <laughs> Because no, you might really. you might get can you know you might get accused of of you know being a criminal and God's judgment etc. But they they still have that under Christianity too. It's just that um, it, it it was one guy. <laughs> <laughs> well, the the thing is, is there is a text. That's the one of the cool things about Christianity is there is a textbook. Now there's apocrypha outside of it, right? Um, that's not in the official book, but if you, mm. if you go to the King James or the modern version or whatever, they, they are translating it from a book a long time ago. And even if your local priest tells you Jesus wants you to support the war in Iraq or whatever it is, you can go back to the book and say, what did he actually have to say about money lending? Or what did he actually, how did he act when somebody was accused of, uh, adultery or whatever? And then mm. that interpretation is not based on the whims of a particular pope, right? 
and and having literacy it is theoretically better because it does produce at least a set of people some small subset of christians like cornell west who don't go around uh saying we need to bomb people because jesus (laughs) they're more like these are our brothers and sisters and we need to cherish them and yes they make Mm. mistakes but we need to forgive them and it's like, oh, yeah. ah, that doesn't sound so bad. I kind of like that. <laughs> and Sounds it, pretty it, good. And yeah, and it, and it doesn't negate like bravery, right? It's just that your bravery is not backed up by uh, being able to pummel somebody to death. Is backed up mm. by your conviction that you're right. Yep. And when you have that kind of conviction, and uh, you know, even if you don't strictly believe in it, as long as you act as if you do, uh, because you hope it's true then that's pretty powerful. Hmm. I mean, it, it's uh, it's pretty hard to explain, like, uh, wh- why people believe things. Usually it's because everybody else around them is believing something. But, oh, their parents believed it and they were brought yeah, up. Yeah, and they're brought up in it. And uh, there's, there's a kind of discipline and rigor and stuff. But uh, ultimately, uh, there's a text that can be referred to. And I don't think we have that in the pre-religious. There's just these codes of behaviors, and uh, we need to serve them. And I think that that's here in this pre one. Uh, it, it's funny that he doesn't have a book. He doesn't have a book with him, right, Paulinus? He doesn't. He doesn't carry no. a copy. So he's just spreading the word based on what he's read or what he was yep. told, and that's one way to go. But when we start codifying things with books. Um, we can always refer to it and we can teach somebody not what we think is the interpretation or we think would be a good story, but actually this is how you read. You can read it for yourself. Yeah. Well, and that was a big, you know, kind of power struggle before the Bible was translated out of Latin. Right. Right. Because controlling who can read this textbook, which has all of our rules. And and in, is, uh, if you want to learn to we- read, there's a uh, number of ways you can do it. And one of them is to be rich and hire a tutor, <laughs> mm-hmm. or you can be relatively poor and send your kid to the church where they will be indoctrinated and trained to to, to be copyists, but yeah. are still under discipline. But even people who, um, but even that wasn't really open to ag- everyday people, was it? No, not women, right? Well, yeah, well, not women, but even no, it, no, it was men, for like, didn't it you was have for to be more like. Yeah, it was for the minor nobility, maybe. Yeah, to absolutely. join the church. General, uh, mm. no, not to join the church, but to become <laughs> to be. Yeah, because have a cause, position because they wanted they want to acquire wealth too, right? Mm. So, uh, but yep. yeah, there there are certainly roles for for people in the church, even if even if they can't read. Uh, <laughs> but that's mm. that is definitely a major change when the printing press comes in and. And it starts to be translated into languages that you actually understand and speak. It becomes useful. And that's why we have, you know, Koreans who became Christians in the 20th century, 19th century, 20th mm. century. And uh, it's, it, we are living in a strange, like, so many ways of analyzing any given situation, right? Um so you can look at it through the religious angle. You can look at it through the cultural angle. You can look at it through historical angle. You can look at it through the geological angle. Um, and all of these things are happening at the same time. 
and they're always in motion. Something is, you know, something is rising. Nothing is in a steady state. So mm. what's so cool about a story is it's an, it's a time. It's like a, I'm treating it like a science now, which I, I really think it is in a certain sense. It's like taking an ice core sample. We say, well, this story is not from 1911. It's from 1903. We got the carbon dating wrong on this a little bit, right? <laughs> um, it mm. might be earlier, says Jesse, because it's possible that it was published in a magazine, but we do know it was as early as 1903. That being said, you know, there's this book called The Golden Bow. It seems to have been popular. Um, lots of people heard about it. A lot of people wrote about it. It has a, a number of elements that are similar here. And so we're actually analyzing it through the other data that we know. And coming to think about how it applies to us today, right? Because folk horror yep. is still with us. I was doing a show with Eric not that long ago on, uh, we did our first um, uh, urban legend. The problem, oh, yeah. Well, the problem with for urban, reading short and deep. yeah, for reading yeah, okay. short and deep. Problem with urban legends is urban legends don't have a first publication, right? No. <laughs> Um, when we do, when we've done, uh, uh, Brothers Grimm stories, you know, like uh, Rapunzel, uh, Rapunzel is far older than the Brothers Grimm, but it gets first codified in German, um, as Rapunzel at a certain date. And then it's translated to English, and then we get a later one with Lucy Crane and uh, her brother, and then we can pick that one and we can talk about the context and where it's coming out of, and we can see the early things. But with an urban legend, the one we did, um, has two names. Uh, one is High Beams, um, and that's the non-spoiler one. And the other one's called The Killer in the Back Seat. <laughs> oh, I know this right. story. And it's a we, good story. We, we said it as kids. It's a great story. It's a great story. Uh, now, you can't call it The Killer. I'm going to tell you, everybody sitting around the camper, I'm going to tell you about what my cousin told me. Uh, this mm. is a urban legend. It's not a true story. <laughs> what no, you well, say is my cousin... Uh, heard this from her brother, <laughs> which would yeah. be your cousin as well. <laughs> and you have to present it. That's as... right. And then, you know, she was staying late at the school because she wanted to study. She left a book in, in the library. She went back to get it. She went back to her car and she's driving down the highway and there's a kill, uh, there's a, there's a truck following her and it's flashing its high beams every time she came to a stop at an intersection. Um, so she was driving home and she's very afraid. And when she gets there, she runs into the house and bangs on the door, trying to get her keys out while her parents are inside. And then parents come out and just as the, the guy in the scary looking car, a truck jumps out of his car coming towards her. He doesn't confront her. He confronts the killer in the back seat. Mm. Now, this is a story that can only exist. In the 20th century, you can't have a 19th century version of this because A, women don't no. drive carts. <laughs> There's no such thing as high beams <laughs> in the 19th century, right? Um, so it has to come out of a context. But figuring out exactly where and when it was coming from um, is more difficult unless you have a very specific text. So we're working with a specific text, but there's no copyright date on it. There's no transcriber. Who told it to who and what context? It's all off the table. And so when we and see a document that is particularly frozen in time, like a Brothers Grimm story, we don't see all the evolution that went into it. We can infer some things and we can look at comparable ones in other countries. But I think that might be what's going on here, too. And I think 
what AC Benson may be doing that we didn't notice is that he might know that, yeah, this is Roman stuff, but I have my thesis is that a lot of the pagan religions around Europe were similar. And mm. that when we say, uh, Diana is the huntress and is similar to Artemis, it's not because the Romans copied the Greeks, but rather because the Greeks and the Romans were, uh, from peoples who had these things. And so it might be mm. the case, not that we can infer it from this story or from any particular evidence. I know that, that the gods that were popular throughout Europe were popular in England as well, not just Southern Europe, like Italy and Greece, right? Mm. They might have their version of Pan. And obviously that's not a hundred percent true, but, uh, we can, we, what's so cool now is today we can trace all this, uh, or at least a lot of it through like Google book, book scanning everything and we can look words up and find when they first appeared. And, and there's new books being scanned all the time. Sorry, I'm talking a lot. You had something to say there. Uh, no. Well, I think, um, I, I agree with you. Um, I can only imagine, like, even stuff like this Golden Bow thing or knowing it, the only reason I know that is because I read this story mm-hmm. and then I read, I said, oh, the Golden Bow is also completely unrelated to reading the Temple of Death, but I knew it was related to folk horror, so I read it. And I just saw the two things and went, oh, they, they make sense. There's a connection there. It seems yep. like they are similar, but that was completely random. Right? There's, um, it was really hard to, to find or draw those connections. So while you can look up like certain words and stuff like that, we're definitely much better off than anyone was in the past. It's, um, where you were just restricted by literally how much you could read or how much time you had and just having to search things. Oh yeah. And use an index. <laughs> we did a show um, on the the Tempest, not that mm-hmm. many moons ago. It's going to come out of the Shakespeare. Yeah, Shakespeare. Yeah. Um, and one of the things I thought was really cool was um, Caliban has a mom, and his mom taught him. She's a dead character in she's she's not alive in the in the play, but she existed before the play on the island. She taught him her religion, um, and. His god is uh, Setebos, I think is the name. I'm like, that's cool. I don't know anything about this. And then the other day, um, I found, oh, this was, uh, it was in actually relation to a Solomon Kane poem. Um, <laughs> there's a poem called The One Black Stain, which is, uh, reference to an actual incident that happened, uh, when Sir Francis Drake was circumnavigating the planet. Uh, he stopped in Patagonia, the bottom of South America, Argentina. Um, to kill his best friend. And so in this, in the story, Solomon Kane is like, you are doing something wrong. You're hiding behind law, but you're just a killer. And, uh, Solomon Kane's gonna kill him for revenge, uh, for tying him up and being uh, a murderer. And he sees him weeping and leaves him in his misery at the end of the, uh, the end of the story. But there's a reference to Magellan. Um, Magellan mm-hmm. having hung his crew, uh, a bunch of mutineers in the same place in the poem. And in reading about Patagonia and, uh, this incident, there's a guy named Pigafetta. I think you know who that is. Um, he's the guy who also wrote a book, uh, that H.B. Lovecraft references in the picture in the house. Um, oh, yes, yes. Yeah. Uh, he's, uh, I think he was a Portuguese guy. And he talks about the gods of 
of the Patagonians and they have giants and stuff like that. And they have this God named Setebos. And I'm like, holy shit, that's, that's the same God. That's so, guy. <laughs> yeah. And I didn't know that at the time we did the, 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 the Tempest. I knew that it was mm. a reference to the new world, but I didn't know that it was explicitly tied to the new world. But of course, Shakespeare, it would have been a contemporary book that he would have been aware of in the same way that, uh, AC Benson is aware of the Golden Bough. And so mm. when we do these, um, deep, uh, archaeological extractions and pull out a l- tiny little slice of history that we think is 1903 or 1911. And we say it's, it's got this and it seems to have that. It's full of this amount of carbon and this amount of uh, dust and whatever. We can be wrong, but we can always get uh, more facts and we can always go back to the sample, the original mm. sample. And that's why I like to get the original text whenever I can, because sometimes people like to fiddle with things and improve it and, you know, it's like chain of custody. You have to go back to the original and check it for yourself. Mm. But it makes it makes it, reading old stories like richer in a way than we can see with a modern story. Because who cares if a book references Trump now? <laughs> right? Mm. Like it doesn't mean anything. It's just normal. But in 300 years when they have, uh, you know, the golden haired uh, dunce or whatever they however they code it. <laughs> right. Um, right. Uh, that'll be of interest and it will it will tell us about something that was happening at the time that maybe we're not able to see as well as they can yeah agreed um and it's funny when you get references like this and it's almost like obviously at the time it was contemporary and they just assumed people would know what they were talking about right um but then in history, it suddenly becomes now a mystery because we don't, we haven't missing pieces. We mm-hmm. don't know what was contemporary because we didn't live through that time. That's right. Um, in uh, another one of the folk horror stories I did of the early ones, I think this one was from 1921 or maybe 1927, um, called Randall's Round by Eleanor Scott. Mm-hmm. She, she makes a reference to the Golden Bough, but she doesn't explicitly name the book. Right. She just says this character has one volume of a series on folklore that was very famous. Mm-hmm. Right. And this thing is obvious when you know that, um, about the time period or about folklore and mythology, the time period she's referring to the Golden Bough. But, and obviously that was meant to be a reference that people picked up on. Right. Because, um, Frasier may have even still been publishing new volumes of the Golden Bough at that point, or at very least it was, um, it was still, uh, in the zeitgeist or mm-hmm. uh, not even the zeitgeist, just in general, like literature at the time. So, um, but in reference, but in, uh, here in the future where we are, mm-hmm. <laughs> you look back and you go, what the hell are they talking about? Mm-hmm. Because, um, you're missing those. There's cultural references. Yeah, all we see is the racism, <laughs> right? Or we, yeah, we, yeah, we, that. yeah. They're so sexist back then. And what's so amazing is like, um, in, in dipping into a, a period and you like learn like all sorts of weird, like I didn't realize how randy 1950s Americans were. Cause you, you watch the movies, you've seen the, the, uh, <laughs> you've seen the films, right? But in looking mm. like the like the going steady and blah, well, blah, blah. it's like looking, you think they're really conservative, but like looking at the 1950s slick magazines. These are the ones that are sold to moms, you know, <laughs> like mm-hmm. well, leave it to Beaver moms and and you know young people magazines. And it's like sex habits of of teenagers. I'm like what? 
Like, like it's mm. unbelievable. Like, we think they're so repressed. And that's the same thing but, we uh, think about, like, uh, Victorians. But you're only getting part of it. it. Yes, there is no literal nudity on the page, generally. But there can be mm. if it's a native woman, right? That's fine. Or if it's, um, uh, you know, if, if it's a bikini, that's fine. Uh, but then, you know, going into the details of why women should get married younger and like all, all everything that we think of, oh, they could never talk about that. Like we get these ideas in our heads, but that's only like sort of a vague memory of your parents <laughs> uh, or the grandparents yeah. about what things are like. And that's, you know, their particular perspective. But if if you do look at the actual archaeological uh, stratum, the the um the fossils of the culture, it tells you more about the animals living then than the animals themselves could tell you. Because the animals, yeah. they, they have skin and they put on makeup and they drive and around they in big 50s say. cars with fins. But the facts yeah. are written down on the page. Your job is to interpret it, but it also it can tell you something that you had no idea about. And it's just the, the fundamental thing about recording history is that like, um, you know, like when I'm telling somebody something about like an argument I got in with somebody else, right? Right. I like, you'll leave out bits of information that make you look bad. <laughs> right. <laughs> right. Even without meaning to. And it's really hard to hold yourself accountable to that. It's mm-hmm. just the natural way humans are mm-hmm. is that, um, they kind of are self-centered and see this from one perspective. And when you're recording history, even if you're trying to be objective, it's almost impossible to be. Yeah. So um, you need that. Uh, so it's like print media sources um, to show what were people really reading and what were the gossip rags talking about mm-hmm. um, at the time. Yeah, I always think like uh, it, it's odd that we, we think of Victoria Victorians like England is being really, really prudish. Mm-hmm. Um, when they've all got so, all these venereal said, diseases and they're making babies out of this. Yeah. Happen? And all these orphans, the where are all these, all these orphans we're hearing about in Dickens coming from? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, exactly. And like the, probably the upper class were yeah. more prudish because they could afford to be, but I think, you know, it was probably also like, well, there's public prudity, right? And then there's private, private indulgence. Yeah. Possibly. Yep. Yeah. And, and, and it's not even, it's not even consistent either, because they're, they're like, uh, you know, when I did a show with Mr. Jim Moon on, on the, uh, the new accelerator, we talked about how, you know, everything, all the drugs that we think of as, you know, taboo and illegal today, they're all legal. Like, you can buy heroin at the, at the grocery store, Mm. (laughs) except it wasn't a grocery store, right? And, you know, hashish is talked about openly, and there's, uh, um, poppy smoking clubs um in chinatown right yeah yeah opium dens. opium uh, dens. was opium legal or? i mean it quasi right i don't know yeah. there are periods of time when it wasn't but the thing is is you know heroin was a product made by bayer <laughs> yeah yeah and, and uh, give it to your kids if yeah yeah and you know so <laughs> we have reactions against it uh, and all the alcohol reactions um and the moral panics all over the place because of these what these things how they affect. But we had moral panics over over coffee, <laughs> and mm. moral panics over tea, but not quite so uh, obvious. Um, and you know, go to war and kill lots and lots of people over getting tea to be cheaper, and uh, mm. yeah, or rum 
cheaper. And you, you yeah. deploy your soldiers with rum. They get paid in rum. It's cra- like crazy, crazy think, um, things. The only like civil war that's ever happened in Australia, I yeah. think it was called the Rum Rebellion. <laughs> and, and it was just over like people wanting rum. Let me just Google this. I'm going to embarrass sure. myself if I... Um, the rum, if I get this history wrong, uh, the rum rebellion, Australia. Yeah. Officers and men of New South Wales Corps marched to government house in Sydney as an act of rebellion against governor Bly. Oh yeah. Yeah. I know. He was, Bly was arrested and the colony was placed under military rule. Yeah. They found him under his bed. Hiding under his bed. Yeah. It's the only time that a government in the history of Australia, that a government's been overthrown by a military coup. And presumably, it's all about rum. Um, well, you know, that's the thing, right? So uh, the trucker rebellion in, in Canada, it, it, it's not all about mass mandates. It's not all about... it's it's It gets labeled as one thing, right? And we have the boxer rebellion in China, right? There's all... You know, it wasn't just religious mania. It was, it was mm. a multiple, but it gets called one thing. Um, but yes, sir, uh, what we know about Bl- uh, Bly is twice, <laughs> famously, he had mutinies under him, right? Oh, God. Right? <laughs> it's like, hmm, Whoops. something's going wrong here. Uh, yeah. So, um, good yeah, story. Okay. Anyway. Are we, are you talking about the Temple of Death was a good yeah. story or about this rum rebellion? <laughs> no, well, both, but, um, I- uh, yeah, I, I like it. I, I like that. And like, as you know, when you're recording an audiobook of these things, you read them really about five or six times. Mm-hmm. So, uh, and this one is, um, I didn't think it was amazing the first, first time, but like as many stories, I thought it had historical significance yep. because it was so early and it did have a lot of these folk horror themes. Um, it has a, mon- having- a literal monster in it. Well, that's the other thing that I, I think I spoke about with folk horror is like folk horror that contains monsters and mm-hmm. ones that doesn't mm-hmm. and, and folk horror story that doesn't. And this is one of the monster variety, mm-hmm. um, uh, which is interesting as well. Uh, so, um, but it's dispatched yeah. in a way that makes it feel like it's not a, a monster hunt, right? No, it, it's not a, um, it's not like a werewolf story or something like that, which no. it could be because yep. the monster sort of is a werewolfy sort of creature um and it's like it's really a sort of a minor part of the story like really it's only it's the symbolic a couple part, of paragraphs right yeah 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 so it's not uh the entire but it, it's at the core it's at the center of it i think of it like as the reason it's locked up is because this is what they do to the people who are outsiders of the society right how do mm. you, I mean, this is how native people dealt with, you know, they don't have prisons, right? So when you are, uh, a wild person in a society and you do things that are against the society, people have to do something about that. They can't just let it stand. And traditionally, no. the way it's dealt with here is they, they isolate you. They put you, they paddle you out to an island and they put mm. you on that island and say, you're going to be here for a year. And when we come back for you, you're going to be more disciplined, aren't you? And if (laughs) it keeps happening, you don't get to come back. Because we have to deal with this. Or like, we just got to kill you. We can't trust you anymore. And you're too dangerous. But that that step, like, usually 
you know, you, it takes a lot. It's very, we don't want to kill each other. So it usually makes governments that make us do that. Or, you know, uh, we get on the boat, we go raiding. Those are not our people. We don't know these people that we're killing. Right. Yeah. But when your neighbors, when you're literally next door to it, it's a way different thing. Or that you have to actually commit it yourself. It's one thing if there's a death penalty and you get sent to a gas chamber and nobody is sort of actually like, you, you know, you don't have to strangle somebody. Yeah. No, it's a, it's a committee head. that does it. Yeah. Yeah. It's, there's a dis- diffusion of responsibility. Whereas, um, like, uh, that's why the hangman is, is wearing a mask, right? So no one knows who he is because you don't want to be the guy that Identified. everybody points out because you're going to get uh, people who want to kill you for murdering my family. Yeah. Yeah. That's yeah. I never thought about that. That's definitely true. Um, it's a faceless thing like, that does it. Yeah. I think, uh, like from what, from what I know of, um, like, uh, indigenous Australian, so the system of handling people who transgress, um, they, there's kind of like an eye for an eye, yeah. uh, idea where it's like, okay, if you, if you like injure somebody intentionally, then basically everyone or the elders get together and go, what are we going to do? Okay. That's this right. person was clearly in the wrong. It's kind of like, okay, the person who was the victim, they get to have a free shot at, <laughs> at this other fella. Yeah. Um, like he stabbed him. Okay. Well, now you get to stab him mm-hmm. and then it's all clear and you can, you can go back to living because everything's equal. Like mm-hmm. you want to equalize everything. Um, but it's hard when it's murder, right? It's yeah. Once it, I mean, like, yeah. Well, I mean, what do you do? And what do you do when you get someone who's just like a chaotic person who can't be controlled and is dangerous? Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. I definitely know of um, at least one I, I remember reading did an anthropology course in uni. And I remember one instance where um, there was a case where there was this guy uh, and um, he was just screwing everything up. He was violent, I guess, a bully um, and just compl- transgressing against the laws of the society you lived in. And uh, the whole like the community got together, much like Julius Caesar. And they were like, we got to kill this guy we all got to do it together. Mm-hmm. Everyone's got to stab him. Um, and they just got together and were like, he's gone way too far. Mm-hmm. We just got to do it. So that's what they did. And there's not much you can really do. If you have someone who's completely uncontrollable and a danger to others, yep. then like JFK, <laughs> you didn't think I was going <laughs> to yeah. go there. Did you? Well, I did not think so. Well, that's who, a- who was I thinking? Uh, <laughs> you were thinking Julius Caesar, uh, but, it, yeah, yeah, but they're yeah. actually a very similar situation. They're both royalty from the from the society um yeah and they disaffect from the the traditional line their power comes from the people not from the mm. royalty and the punishment yeah. comes from the community of well, that that profits by the values that's right and the status quo and so that's what makes them dangerous and the power Although, threatening the power yeah other people who are like rogues and maybe have no power really but they do have a kind of at a very individual level they're dangerous. Um, then it's it's the same thing. You've got a the community has to take care of it, and thus no, no. we have the philosophy of law and <laughs> thousands of I years like of the, discussion. You hit it under 
take care of it. <laughs> yeah, well, whatever that. <laughs> whatever it is, is, it needs to be taken care of. Yeah. 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 <laughs> <laughs> yeah. You got to whack them. <laughs> <laughs> That's that itself is a metaphor, right? They're all. They're all. There's so many. When when you start looking for um, synonyms for words that have no uh, negative connotation, you have almost no synonyms. Mm. And when you start looking for things that have massive negative connotation uh, or you know taboo subject, there's millions of synonyms, right? Yeah, euphemisms to replace. And um, I mean, if anything that you don't want to actually say what it is, you don't want to actually say the word. You want to obscure it behind layers of meaning. Oh yeah, so that you feel less. You feel well, maybe less. Maybe you're avoiding the law um, and disguising your language. It's literally the word execute means do, <laughs> mm. right? We need to execute him. We know what that means. It means yeah. like hang him, shoot him, right? Execute yeah. a plan just means do the plan that we think uh, thought to do, right? So why does yeah. why does execute mean uh, kill? <laughs> because to carry through to the end. That's right. To follow Perfection. through on the plan that we had planned to do. Executive mm. power is the power to do, not just talk about, but do. And we got to do them because he got to get done. <laughs> this guy got to get yeah. done. <laughs> Exactly. Mm-hmm. And what, what's nice about this is there's a guy in this story who is a murderer and doesn't want to be. He wants to be forgiven, mm. but doesn't have a society that will allow him to do so. The replacement religion says that all people are good or can well, be. Well, okay. You know what? Um, yes, that's absolutely true. And I feel like that's kind of the... Um, the breaking of the cycle is the is the big th- is the in big important takeaway from the story. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, like we were talking about, like, what do you do when you have some rogue individual in a society and you have no prison system or, or to deal with them? But actually, there was a situation exactly like that in this story because the priest's brother is like that. Yep. He's just a total t- like jerk. Um, he, he horribly kills the priest's girlfriend. And then what do you do, right? The the priest uh, killed him, like um, as we think. Had you know, what are the options? You yeah. forced my hand, bud. Yeah, what am I going to do? Let you get away with this murder? Yeah. Um, and notice that that's not where yeah. the Christianity comes in. That's a much harder story to tell. Is the yeah. pre uh, revenge, the post revenge well, forgiveness far more understanding. Mm. <laughs> but it, yeah, I think, it's easier to ask for forgiveness than. But wait, I think no, that's how does the phrase that go. Yeah, mm. yeah, the permission afterwards. The permission, yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, but that that actually is what I was talking about. Like when I talk to the little little kids and I talk about Spider Man, right? <laughs> you know what mm-hmm. Spider Man would do in a given situation because you know what Spider Man's character is, right? Mm. He's he's a do gooder. He is on the side of the person being oppressed. Right, it's easy to understand, but in a society where punishment is is the thing, your heroes are the people who are good at punishing, and that doesn't give a lot of room for all the people who suffer the punishment. Mm. And so, what you want to do is make a virtue of sort of thinking things out 
beforehand, what would Spider-Man do? What, or as they say on the, you know, American t-shirt or whatever, what would Jesus do? Mm. <laughs> and the answer isn't, uh, you know, send, uh, N-Law launchers to blow up tanks in uh, Ukraine. It's, uh, probably let's try and, uh, not have war. And that doesn't mm. mean, you know, unilateral disarmament. It means, uh, don't, you know, send, uh, weapons to death squads trying to kill people so that you can make some more cash. Because ultimately, it, it's chicken hawks who run the society in most cases. It isn't the guy at the front line, right? Mm. And, and we, we're really in a chicken hawk time where everybody says, chicken oh, hawk. a chicken hawk is a, is a person who, uh, is a chicken. Is a chicken, but acts like a hawk. But says they're, you know, war, war, war. This has been the SFF Audio Podcast. Please join us at www.sffaudio.com. And thanks for listening. If you enjoyed this podcast, consider becoming a patron at patreon.com forward slash SFF audio. And not at all. I, I presume you guys get a full on snow. Yeah, we like get snow it. Drift. Not, you know, it can pile up and be, we're not used to it here. So when it comes, it, um, it's very, uh, it causes it's a big deal. Difficulty. Yeah. I, I, it's, it comes fairly regularly, you know, like every winter, but when, like we could have it as late as June, but it's usually, you know, January, February, December sort of deal. And it could happen in October, mm. but very unlikely. November, sure. Um, but it, it can stick around for a couple weeks or it could snow and then clear up and then snow again. But we don't, we don't have it like frozen over the whole winter. Like if you go to Calgary, Alberta, where, you know, it's cold all winter and it's dry all winter. So the snow, doesn't get washed away by rain or anything like that okay cool yeah um evan may may not be with us i don't know um he uh didn't respond to my um hey we're doing a show at (laughs) 40 minutes from now (laughs) so we can have a little chat first maybe uh excuse me a second while i cough um go for it (coughs) okay cool um no worries I just realized I have a VPN on right now, All and right. I wonder whether it might slow us down a bit. It sounds fine right now, but uh, you can test your ping if you want. Well, I was thinking I might just disconnect it. Yeah. So I'm, yeah. that'll be easier. But I might just be off disconnected for a second. Yeah, sure. Let no me worries. see. Just, just do it now. Mm-hmm. Okay. So you're not being, you're not in NATO, right? So you won't, you won't end up in Ukraine and. Uh, less likely to be nuked is my guess. No, um, yeah, no, we're not, so we won't be. Yeah, you'll um, be nuked over Taiwan, not over Ukraine. Good to know. Yeah, possibly. I mean, it makes a difference. <laughs> I don't think Russia's our no, no, threat. But, but no, but, China, China for when uh, they. Yeah, no. Yeah. Since you brought it up, though, mm-hmm. um, okay, I'll tell you something cool that happened. That happened recently, but also this is like pretty private, so don't. Um, <laughs> it's in the preamble. Or, well, it'll be out seven or, months from now, bud. <laughs> Will that make no, a difference? True, but still, 
All right. Even seven months. Um, All right. I'll put it, a big oh, well, over this section. And then I'm like, yep, oh, yep. my God, you've blown my mind. Yeah. Too no, bad no, no one no one will be alive to hear this podcast. <laughs> yeah. Well, if uh, World War Three breaks out, then. <laughs> yeah, I won't be able to edit um, it up. I like the way you pronounce diaspora. <laughs> diaspora. How would you pronounce it? Diaspora. <laughs> diaspora. <laughs> but oh, yours is okay. more fun. How many syllables? Diaspora. Diaspora. <laughs> Same. <laughs> it's just. Yeah. Yeah. That's I've only ever seen a written. So oh, really? It might be like a macabre, macabre sort of <laughs> situation. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, Neil Gaiman's got, uh, I think it's it's in the graveyard book. It's the macabre. Uh, oh, the oh, macabre. Um, but he should know if anyone does. I think it's, I think, well, it's for the audiobook, right? But, uh, it's also, I think it's more fun to say that way because it hides. Macabre? Yeah. Wh- when you think, when you think about it, it hides what it is. Macabre is much more fun to say, like it's dripping mm. ghoulish, right? Whereas macabre yeah. is kind of fun. Um, I think mm. it's part of it, like a, a uh, little dance macabre, macabre that happens in the graveyard. Have you read that book, graveyard book? I have. Good book. And I also listened to the audiobook, um, which I believe Neil Gaiman did himself. Yeah, he did one on tour that was all up on YouTube, uh, chapter by chapter. Every, every bookstore he went to, he, he recorded a chapter. So he yeah. didn't like read the same chapter over and then you could like string them all together and, have him reading the whole book. And then I think maybe there was a, uh, an official version of the audiobook shortly thereafter. Mm. Yeah. Fun. Yeah. He's a good, uh, he's a good reader. He is. He's a very good performer. Um, I think, you know, it probably has something to do with, uh, with his, his writing being good too. He's, he's a genuine yeah. enthusiast. I wonder whether he, um, He's one of those authors who really reads as he writes, right? Like, um, he, uh, like performing it, you mean? Mm, I was thinking more like he writes in a sort of casual, uh, conversational sort of way mm. that could be read out, mm. right? Whereas I think sometimes people write entirely in their head without sure. the consideration of how is this going to sound when it's read out loud. Yeah, I don't I think he's a poet. I don't think like he has po- like a book of poetry that he's done. Yeah. But rhythm or- he definitely mm. likes that stuff and uh, mm. I do think it is meant to be read aloud. I know he is uh interested in audiobooks and was always recording or having the audiobook come out when his book came out, which is important uh for for it. Yeah, there are certainly the other kind of writer who doesn't really understand that sentences are come second after sounds <laughs> like, mm. like um when i'm writing i especially like on twitter right the punctuation there is only for uh sake of not con- not confusing things um mm. and that that's really what punctuation is for anyways right but in a conversation you don't generally have to say, uh, I say at the end of a sentence, when I'm talking to my students, I say, jump, don't forget the jump. The jump is the period. That's Korean for dot. It's a much better uh, word than okay. period, which is three syllables. So, mm. ba 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 jump, comma, <laughs> you know, like that. Um, and so, like, punctuation tells you how to read it. But yep. if 
yeah, so, um, I think he's got, he's, he's definitely m- made it to be read aloud. Right. As, especially the graveyard book. Mm. That's the kind of book that parents would read to their. And Coraline. You know, mm-hmm. Yeah. I've never read Coraline. It's a good book. Um, it's, it's, um, yeah. more, it's, it's even more for children. Um, like a lot, like it seems to be aimed more at children, but, um, kids like the graveyard book. I read it with students and they liked it too. Um, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. It's and got great stuff. Huh? Great stuff. Great vocab. And, um, like, like everybody who's wise, <laughs> they steal the good things. They don't steal the bad things. Yeah. Uh, yep. Like everything, everything that he, like Coraline, uh, is, is his take on, uh, a story called The New Mother, which is, uh, like it's about 40 minute sort of fairy tale, but it's, it's a, yeah, it's a fairy tale, not a folk tale. Um, by a lady, I want to say it's like 1900 or so. And it's a, mm. it's a freaky story about kids disobeying their mom. And the mom says, if you keep disobeying me, um, I'm going to go away and you're going to get a new mother. Right. And oh. so it's, it's his take on that. Um, but he makes it, uh, longer. It's novel length, right? But it's mm. also, uh, it's creepier in some ways. It's more like, you know, a Disney horror movie in some ways. And I guess it got turned into a Pixar or something, right? Um, mm. but the original folktale is, is like creepier because at the end, you know, the, the kids don't get their mom back. It's like your new mother has a wooden tail now and has button eyes and you're fucked. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Wow. It's fucking horrifying. Yeah. Really good. I love that stuff. And then, uh, you know, Graveyard Book is, is stealing from the Jungle Book and, uh, he, he, he finds something cool that hasn't been read in a while and says, Hmm, let me, let me do my version of this. Mm. And, you know, he has that Lovecraft story called Shaw got sold peculiar, which is just about going to the pub and uh, getting some Cthulhu beer <laughs> or whatever. Um, Never read that one. That's yeah. It's a short story. Um, you know what Caroline or that, yeah. that new mother story mm-hmm. reminds me of, um, there was a uh, a horror film, um, which I think is called Goodnight Mummy. Ooh. And it's about uh, these two twin boys, right? Mm-hmm. And their mother is, I think she's like a model or an actress. Mm. And she goes to get plastic surgery Oof. to get some, like, touched up. Um, and so when she comes back, her whole face is covered in bandages due to the right. surgery. And they start to think that the woman who came back is actually not their mother. Wow. That she was replaced. And I, it just, it, I think, uh, the new mother, right? Like, obviously that's, uh, is not a doppelganger. Um, it is or, uh, sort of, it looks like her, but it, but it has a wooden tail. Yeah. Oh, so that's it. So it looks exactly like her, but pretty much. Yeah. A, bo- a yeah. wooden tail and a button, like, like having a tail in the first place is strange, but. A wooden tail and button eyes. Yeah, yeah. And and, and so yeah, can, replacing her ki- her children's eyes with button eyes because then they'll uh, behave better, right? Yeah, that's it's horrible. it's freaky. It's it's solidly freaky. Um yeah, yeah. this li- I've never heard of this movie, but it says Austrian uh horror film. Yeah. It's quite good. Um but it but the concept of um of I don't know what you call it, like the cha- changeling the body snatches uh, 
or like I've never seen is it the movie called Body Snatchers or Invasion of the Body Snatchers? The, that's it. Yeah, yeah. 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 Um, n- not the old, not the old story. They're both good. From the eight, um, oh yeah, definitely. Um, in fact, the, that the one, like, original yeah. movie's better uh, by a bit, but the second one's good too. It's just a, it's much more seventies. Um, You're talking Invasion of the Body Snatchers. Yeah, yeah. Body Snatchers, Invasion yeah. of the Body Snatchers. Um, D- Philip K. Dick has one called. Um, the the father thing yep yeah 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 i i believe i've read it yeah it's good and freaky um yeah it's a terrifying idea that somebody who you know could be replaced yes like there's something that looks exactly like them but is not them and and uh, their emotions are broken in a way that yeah. the other persons weren't and that's that's the way you read the the new mother is that Look, I'm trying to be reasonable with your children, but you're just too disobedient. And so now yeah. I have to be the thing that I really am. <laughs> yes. And yeah. I, I can, and you can never go back. Uh, we can never mm. have that good relationship again. And it's like, oh, that's fucked. Um, speaking of yeah. which, um, you've seen Brazil, that uh, 80s horror movie that's sort of... Uh, nope. Uh, it's um, Terry Gilliam. Um, I have heard of it. Yeah, so it's it's a strange strange film. I heard somebody do a show on it recently. I think it's that show called um uh, The Lack, which is a really good show. Have you heard this this podcast, The Lack? No. Um, um yeah, so it's got two women and one dude. And the dude, I know I I, I saw him do something political on Twitter and he's he's like a uh, he's, he's got another podcast where he has students, graduate students, but he's super young. He's like you, your age, you know? Um, mm. and he's an American, grew up in Indiana and, and now is like a, I think not a professor cause they don't call him that, but it, he's like a reader or something, you know, which is like the equivalent of a professorship at, uh, Cambridge or something like that. And okay. he has two podcasts. One is, uh, sort of a political, I think it's politics 101. And he has like graduate students come on and do shows with him about stuff. And mostly he talks and then the kid, uh, the kid, the student reacts, um, and throws in some questions and some ideas. And then this other one is much more casual in that they talk about movies usually. Um, the latest one though was really interesting. It's, uh, uh on a TV show called Malcolm in the Middle, which is a show I never watched. But I knew, mm-hmm. knew of and it ran a while and it starred, uh, the guy who was later on. Um, Breaking Bad. Brian Cranston. Him, yeah. Um, and it's like a family, you know, sitcoms show, but, uh, the, the, the premise behind the lack is a very strange one. It's, it's that, uh, these sort of movies and stories tell us about what we lack. <laughs> oh, yeah, okay. Um, and so, like, they, they did a show on a, uh, like a, uh, a movie from the 70s that I've never seen about uh, unionizing, I think it was taxi drivers or something like that. And it was like just a brutal movie <laughs> based on what they what they were saying. And then they do, like they just did Don't Look Up. And that's a Netflix film. And they didn't want to do it because they're, they're too highbrow or whatever. And their take on it was like, um, yeah, that's, that's uh, a movie we don't, we don't want to talk about. But they did it. And w- what's really interesting is they come at these things from uh, political and personal points of view. Uh, mm. and that, you know, like, whatever relationships, problems they've had in their life, whatever, uh, 
uh, parental problems they've had in their life. It's there for the analysis and, and they're very, you know, academic y about it. So they, they, um, they can cope, but they, it's, it's like having fun as well because these are often they're like art films or, uh, you know, movies, you know, in foreign languages or something. But then they'll do these sort of mainstream ones, uh, like Don't Look Up or Malcolm in the Middle and talk about why they're obsessed by it. And, uh, the, the main guy's name is, uh, Benjamin Studebaker. He's on both these podcasts. Um, oh, yes. I actually think I know this fellow. Really? Wow. No, no, not personally, but I, I think I've heard of him. I tweet, I, I retweet have... his stuff every once in a while, but I, 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 I find myself tweeting his podcast quite a bit. There aren't that many really terrific podcasts. Often, like, I like that right good. They put out a good episode every, you know, three months or something. But the lack is consistently interesting because I, I like movies. Hmm. I, they're easy to get into. Um, and they talk about, you know, why things are the way they are in our reality, um, through the lens of, you know, bigger trends in politics and, uh, you know, capitalist realism sort of thing, which is very, uh, appropriate. I keep thinking about that book, that Mark Fisher book over and mm. over again, you know, it's like, um, it means it, it, it I, I, it's like, I feel like I need to reread it because I got it, but, um, I, 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 I feel like I need to have parts of it memorized, you know? Mm. So that's, yeah, that's there's, what's going on. There's a, um, there's another one, uh, that's seems like it goes hand in hand with capitalist realism, what's not that? by, uh, Mark Fisher, but, um, Slavoj Žižek, mm-hmm. I, th- I think called, uh, it's called, like a thief or a thief in broad daylight or mm. something like that. Um, but it's about, yeah, the, the, uh, sort of some of the insidious aspects of capitalism. Um, so I've been, I have it. I've been meaning to listen to it for quite a while. Oh, there's but, an audio book of it. Okay. Well, you sold. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I wonder whether he reads it. Probably uh, not. But. Probably not. Cause he's got those yeah. vocal ticks that are fun, but I think they also obscure his meaning sometimes. They can take away from it. Yeah. Um, well, it's it's not the ideal reader, but let's let's have a look at the audiobook. Uh, mm. I I like when I type it in. It says Zizek Thief in Broad Daylight audiobook, and then the next word to autocomplete is free. No, um, oh. <laughs> <laughs> I wouldn't type in free. I would just go to get it from the free place. It's eight hours six minutes. It's narrated by somebody named Jamie East. Okay. Cool. I'm going to press play and became a legitimate topic of natural sciences. None of these three options is adequate for the establishment, which basically wants to have its cake and eat it. I'll take it. Yep, okay. It has the words establishment in it. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) All right, when are we booking that for? Uh, Whenever. Well, Um, yeah, that's the other thing, is is you you gave me some dates, and I'm not very good unless I'm actually on the the calendar, so um, I'm going to send you the link. Yeah. Oh, you got it? Okay. Uh, I'll open up real quick. Right. Here we go. I saw, um, okay, what else do we have coming up? Cause, um, Shunt House, we already booked, right? Cool. Yep. Um, I still want to do Treasure Island. I know. Yeah, we, no, definitely. No, no, no. For a while. We can, we can um, book it whenever. Um, uh, so Temple Death's going to be today. Hopefully, Connor. Yeah. No, not Connor. Hopefully, Evan will show up. 
uh, at five, just thinking we were late. But it's he's he's not as reliable as um, as he used to be because now he has a wife and a kid <laughs> in, mm. on the same island. And a as cat? Him. Uh, no, I'm not sure if he has a cat. Does he have a cat right now? Oh, he. I think he said he was getting a cat. Oh, maybe that's it. I encourage him to put post pictures of it yes. on Twitter. <laughs> yeah, he's not um. very good at posting pictures. I have to encourage him to do so. Or I nah, tease people fine. into it, like uh, somebody was talking about. Um, he says, that couldn't be my bookshelf. Not as disheveled. Not enough piles of too few paperbacks and magazines. Said, I said, uh, need photos or it doesn't exist. <laughs> mm. <laughs> Piss people off on Twitter. That's my job. Yeah. Uh, so we uh, we have scheduled... I. I don't know if you're into it, but we've got scheduled for next week. Everything's eventual by Stephen Shitlib King. Okay, <laughs> I just saw that. Um, um, hmm, I do. I think that's oh, a I've been short wanting... book. I'm not sure. Well, it's on my it's on my bookshelf. Let me just turn around and take a look. Uh, so this is just the short story, not the whole book. Uh, oh, okay. Yeah. It Excuse says um, it's a novella. Yeah, I didn't realize it's a um that it's a, a collection. Um Ooh, that's a I will I will be f- free next weekend, possibly. That says eight AM for, uh, for Paul though, so um that would probably not work uh, for you, right? Probably not. Yeah. And um Okay, so look, I might skip that because yeah, we then have no man's land, right? But remember, this was the one where on the day before, like I ha- we we need to reschedule it because the day before that, All right. I'm going, I'm that's when I'm heading off on this big trip for two two and a half weeks or so. All right, um, so I'm gonna make so some holes we'll at the bottom, and then we'll fill them in okay. when you're back from. As soon as I figure out how to make these holes. Insert row yep. above. There we go. Insert row above. Well, with with No Man's Land, because um, I'm about to be going on holiday um, before that, if we want to change it to just like a day before or an unusual time for me, like I can I can stay up later and, and do it later at night or early in the morning Um if we're going to do that, just because I feel like we should get it, like, if we wanted, I don't want to move it too far away okay. in the schedule. I'm happy to accommodate another time. All right. Well, so um, we can hit that out. Uh, I'm not sure. What day of the week is it for you right now? It's Sunday, right? Sunday. Yeah, Sunday morning. So this is, this is Sunday, 10 a.m. for me. Right. At this time. Okay. So that's similar to where Evan's time is, I think. Yeah. Right? You guys are in a similar time zone? Roughly. I think he's a couple of hours Taiwan. even earlier than me. So I think he's earlier Taiwan. in the day. No. <laughs> Taiwan, 725 a.m. Okay. Yep. Yep. So, uh, we he's can probably just, not even awake. <laughs> uh, yeah. I mean, I think he's a night, night owl sort of person. Um, uh, well, what, why don't we, why don't we wait on mo- moving that until we, uh, we hear if he shows up today. Um, cause I, okay. I, I'm fine with moving it. Um, Paul's not going to be there for that. So it's just you, me and Evan for that. Um, mm-hmm. when to go, you're going to be gone. I take it. 
Yes, and it looks like you got a bunch of people yeah. already. Uh, it's hard to get Mr. Jim Moon. He's been more difficult uh, to get than than uh, he used to be. That's because he's got a wife mm. and a dog now. <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> um, and that story, Souvenir, um, you should read that for Loki Dick story. I was thinking about it okay. a lot. It's... Um, it's, uh, they go to a planet that's been disconnected from the rest of the Earth Empire, and they're gonna, like, bring it back into the fold sort of thing. Um, it, okay. I think we, this came to mind when we read, uh, Ursula Kelleguin's The Dispossessed. Um, because okay. that, that's the same idea, sort of. There's separate to, you know, outside of the, outside of the community of man, and they're anarchist or whatever. So this, this planet, they go to, and, um, they're like, they're going to bring him into the fold, but uh, they've got their own society going down there, and it's a utopia, kind of. Everybody's, like, walking around the university campus of their life uh, in, like, Greek uh, robes, or what, what are those called? Not called robes. Togas? Togas! They're wearing togas and walking through cedar tree-lined uh, paths, and it's uh, they're all very intellectual. Um, and then they've got, like... Uh, uh, perif- peripheral society on the planet. This is what I'm remembering of it. And uh, the humans that come to colonize them or reconquer them uh, go away with a souvenir that's going to change their the the empire that they're coming from. Is the idea? Hmm. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah. Philip K. Dix is full of ideas. So that's one's interesting. We got Black Amazon and Mars, and then the Shunned House. So you're you're cool. in for that. But you're back for the two. You're back by that point, right? Yeah, that's one of. Um, and I'm keen for that one because this is a story I've read it mm. several times, mm-hmm. or I've listened to the audiobook, and it's one of the ones where I always meant to go back and read it because I feel like I never quite grasp it. I I think you're on the same so, wavelength as me because I've read it um, and I remember it, but not very well. I yeah. just remember there was flamethrowers and uh, and there was a thing under the house. It was kind of like a vampire house, yeah, sort of, or something like that. Yeah, and he has a poem yeah. that's called "The House." That's kind of similar, I think, if not the okay. same house. And it's based on a real house, yeah, in Providence, I and, believe. And you know, he's his thing is you know houses, anyways. That's what he and cares architecture. about. Yeah, yeah. So, yeah, the uh, fact that he's made a a. Uh, a house, the central figure of a story is kind of interesting. There's actually a few of them, right? The picture in the house also, but that's about the picture, not the, not the house. So mm. <laughs> it's kind of interesting. Yep. All right. And then, um, as you can see down the bottom there, Marissa wanted to do uh, a story by King called Strawberry Spring, mm-hmm. which I don't know anything about other than it sounded fine. Um, and, uh, and then we got some other things we can put in that come to mind when they come to mind. But um, 0507 is the most recent one booked. That would be May 7th. So uh, the next week after that would be the 14th, 0514. Mm. And what were you thinking for there? Uh, oh, that um, that uh, eight-hour Zizek book? Oh, Yep, yep. Like a thief in broad daylight. All right. Uh, let me bring up the yeah. name. There it is. I got to be strategic when I listen to that, though, because yep. I always, it always upsets me, and then I have a bat, and then I'm pissed off the rest of the day. Wow. Uh, well, not that much, but when I was like, when I was reading, uh, 
uh, what was it? Yeah, capitalist realism. I'm like, oh, it didn't didn't upset me. It's just depressing, you know. Mm. Like I agree with it, and it's fascinating. But I'm like, oh fuck. Well, that one, the, 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 the subtitles. There is no alternative. We're 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 stuck in hell, bud. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yep. Which is pretty, um, pretty hardcore. Much. And, yeah, and I was thinking, and like uh, the idea of um, being a fish in water, of like we don't even sure. understand what we're in, or that there's another poss- possible way of doing things. Um, it's 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 almost yeah. Legati like, and not that I've read any Legati, but maybe we need to change that. Yeah, possibly. It's um, yeah, it, it's uh, it, it it is in the sense that like. The crushing um, <laughs> weight of uh, of um, I don't know reality or mm. something, something like that. It's a, it's like a dystopia. Yeah, that's 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 why I like um, that lack because they 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 understand the central problem, right? Mm. Like I didn't ha- I didn't know about this word neoliberal until probably three or four years ago. Um, and I'm I'm not you know at the very forefront of uh, of current political thought, <laughs> as in mm. I'm not in that the academy teaching uh, you know this stuff. So it, I, I've caught up to it. I I don't think most people know it. it you know, neoconservatism came in um, and it seemed to hit uh, faster for most people, but it's uh, it's related to the stuff like. Um, all the uh, properties, the consolidation of movie properties, and and uh, like uh, just talking about like how Picard, the the TV show, Evan had a really really funny tweet about. He's he's like hate watching <laughs> mm, mm. the uh, the Picard season two. Um, I've been told that uh, it's it's not so good. Um, he says, Picard says, is like someone took a dump after eating all the Star Trek and wiped it on the wall. Uh, yeah. It sort of smells <laughs> like Star Trek, but I don't advise getting too close. That's <laughs> like, yeah, yeah. <laughs> they didn't like, like when I, when I'm, uh, when I watched Star Trek, uh, you know, in reruns when it was on TV, you know, in the eighties, I, I said, this is a show that's good. I don't know why I didn't say to myself, I don't know why I, I didn't say, I know why it's good. I just knew it was good. But what made it good? Mm. Look, you know, I rewatched it during COVID and I'm like taking massive notes, tweeting about it as I'm watching it. Uh, and pretty, you know, not every episode, but I, I watched all, all the Star Treks up, you know, the shows up to, uh, Voyager and Enterprise, Enterprise is the last one, right? And then I went back and started uh, the original Star Trek. I started with season two of Next Generation and went all the way up to the present and went back to the original Star Trek. And what you notice is, like, there's good episodes and bad episodes. But watching them back to back to back, you can see, like, oh, this is that story. They said, I like this story from that series. We can do our version Mm. of that. And watching Blake 7, right, or um, there's a show I was – I tweeted about recently called um, uh, Dark Matter, which is supposedly based on a comic book I'd never seen. Um, but it's a similar premise to Blake 7, where seven people or six people and a robot or whatever uh, are on a powerful spaceship on the run from 
powerful forces in the Galactic Empire or whatever, right? And the, the first episode is just the setup of that. And then the second episode is the Magnificent Seven in space, right? Mm. Magnificent Seven is a story that gets endlessly ripped off, right? It's ripped off from Seven Samurai. <laughs> so it's a good story. Well, if you have a good story, rip it off, right? Yeah. And the whole thing, the whole series of Blake Seven is a rip off of Robin Hood, which is a great story. It's about, you know, some outlaws who are heroes and trying to make a difference in a harsh reality of blah, blah, blah. So it's a good one to rip off. But if you rip off like a shitty movie, like Men in Black, Men in Black is fun, but I defy you to explain <laughs> to me why it's, a, why it's a good movie, other than it's fun. Right? Mm. Just because it has sequels doesn't mean it's good. And you can go back and find, like, um, I watched a movie called Capricorn 1, um, and that has... It, it has a lot of the stuff you see in Men in Black. It's got black helicopters, conspiracy. It, it's basically the Apollo, the Apollo missions, but they uh, they fake the moon landing instead. It's they're going to Mars in that one because it's after the Apollo. But it's it's like how how would this happen? Sort of 1970s conspiracy worries, and uh, and so it has these like these tropes that are later developed into whole series. Like Men in Black was a comic book based on mm-hmm. black helicopters and all that stuff, right? The, these guys who come in and clean up and uh, censor the official record and blah, blah, blah. So it's based on reality, but people pick up that trope and say, that's the thing. We're only going to do that thing. And at some point, we're going to have like a uh, a movie that's called Three Point Landing, where, where the hero falls out of an airplane or whatever and lands on uh, two legs and one hand because it was such a jump. Which is in every Marvel thing, right? Every Marvel. Oh, when they did three point yeah, landing, yeah. right? That's going to be the whole movie, <laughs> right? Because they, yeah. they think that we want what we want is to see tropes. What 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 we really mm-hmm. want is to see ideas. So last week we did the cold equations and the ones who yeah. walk away from Omelas. Um and uh, the cold equations is a story that has been done on. Uh, there's an episode of Star Trek that's the cold equations. And it has Mr. Spock uh, having to decide who has to stay behind uh, when they don't have enough fuel to get off their planet. Right? Mm. And so they they increase the number of characters, uh, but have the same central dilemma. And, you know, how they get out of it is, you know, Mr. Spock gambles with their lives. Right? Mm. Um, and then what's funny is Blake Seven has a as a uh, same episode, except it's they get out of it a different way. Um, it's uh, a and, and you don't even know that that's what it is until quite late in either of them, right? You're watching a Galileo Seven, you don't realize that that's what it's about until you know quite late, or you maybe you won't even realize it at all because you know Cold Equations is not fresh in your mind. But the way they get out of it in the Blake Seven one is. Um, the, he's going to kill his friend because his friend, you know, the main character is like, he has only one central core value. I'm, I'm important. <laughs> and so mm. his friend, who is not really his friend, is just a guy he's always with. Um, he's gonna, he's gonna push him out the airlock. But then he realizes what, what's causing the fuel problem. And it's like inside the thing they picked up, uh, is a, you know, little bit of, 
degenerate matter or something. So he pushes that out the airlock when he can't find his the guy who's hiding from him. <laughs> mm. <laughs> and it's like the end of the episode is like, you were going to push me out the airlock. And he's, well, you know. <laughs> I was like, yeah, wow, yeah. hardcore. Yeah. How was the episode when you were discussing the cult equations? I think, it, I, I think we, it was good. Because um, we discussed it a little bit on one of the preambles mm. of, I forget which show it was. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't yeah. remember. And it's, but uh, yeah. It's something we think so, a lot, uh, about a lot because why, I used to think, uh, I think the main takeaway I had from it was I used to, I used to agree with a lot of people's points that it, that it was a bad story, but I would say it was a bad story because of the way it's written rather than, mm. rather than, um, because Good concept. it's, yeah. And what, what I found in reading it this time is actually it's incredibly well written. It's just slow and long. So it's a, it's mm. about 50 minutes to read or to narrate, right? And the central idea is very small. It's, there's two people trapped in a, in a spaceship and one has to kill the other one. And that's the whole idea. So how, how come it takes that long? It should be a 10 minute story, right? And it doesn't, it mm. lingers over it. Um, and that lingering makes it, uh, kind of like, um, some, it's almost like somebody's dying and they're wrestling with the idea of whether they can survive or not. And so it, if if you accept it like that rather than as a it's a mental exercise and then you look at the actual writing he's not you know the most brilliant pro stylist on the planet but it's very well written in the metaphors and the there's a, a few clunky things like it's like the the society is 1950 society in the future so women are treated uh like first class citizens in sh- male chauvinism right mm. Which, which, like, if you, like, I did one of those exercises where you take the, the, uh, the gendered text project or whatever, you take the, the he pronouns, you reverse it and put she pronouns in you. And then wherever it said, like, in the story, uh, describing what the girl in the, in the space closet looked like, uh, I just replaced it with he was tall and had brown hair. Uh, <laughs> instead mm. of short and uh, pixie like, she he's like an adult man, and mm. and she uh, Barton becomes a she, and she's going to sh- uh, shoot the stowaway. But when she finds out that he is a a man, sh- he acts all she acts all sentimental. It doesn't make any sense, right? Mm. It's only because of the sh- male chauvinism of the of the uh, presumed audience and the 1950s. Um, that it, it functions that way. And so in a modern adaptation, um, it, it just becomes their two people, right? They, they relate as human beings one to the other. Or if you go, I say modern, the eighties adaptation is like that. If you go to the more recent ones, uh, there's a, uh, sort of a modeling, um, uh, or they go to extra lengths to change not just the, gender but the the social status and the and the blameworthiness of the person who stowed away or there's a movie called stowaway that uh it you know makes the stowaway an accident and he's a black man from a uh, third world country or whatever and he he's such a worthy person he saved his sister from a fire and he's experienced pain and his sister can't live without him right so it's like you can you mm. can make it more confused and more more um you can 
reverse the situation, but the, the core situation remains the same. And that's what really makes it interesting is that you're killing somebody who shouldn't be killed in a normal circumstance. We would think it would be wrong. Um, yeah. So, oh my God, this, uh, I can't believe I've never heard of this movie, Stowaway. This looks great. Yeah. It's, uh, Netflix and Prime, depending on what country you're in. Um, okay. And of course, other methods to get it too. Um, what's funny is there's also a, if you look at the Wikipedia entry for, uh, the cold equations, I didn't know about this when I read it originally in like, uh, science fiction's best or whatever it was called. It was, it wasn't the road to science fiction. It was the other one. Uh, that's like SFWA writer's choice or something edited by Silverberg. Um, mm-hmm. you know, it's like, this is a classic science fiction story. Everybody should read is the idea behind it. It's, it's in the canon, whatever the canon is, right? Maybe. Um, but there was a 1952, uh, um, EC comic from weird science called a weighty decision, <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> weighty decision. And it's, it's about three men who I'll make the first crew of the people to land on the moon and they're in the army or air force and they're building this spaceship to go to the moon. It's essentially the Apollo story, right? Um, and the hero falls in love. The main hero captain figure falls in love with the daughter of the engineer building the spaceship or whatever. And he shows her around the spaceship and then she stows away. <laughs> on it. Mm-hmm. So it's the same setup, right? She still she just wants to be with him. <laughs> and yeah. And then he puts her out the airlock. Yeah. So it's the same story, but um but it's but changing not changing those relationships. Yes. As you said, just makes it it can make it such a a more interesting story. Well, it it actually it, it it's interesting as it is, but it sort of it teases out things that are implicit within us that we don't see, right? Mm. So when people are saying, like, one of the th- things people said about this story is that it's fridging. <laughs> this stupid term where, you know, you have a uh, daredevil or whatever uh, fantasy superhero. Um, his girlfriend is, he comes home from work uh, fighting crime and he finds his girlfriend stuffed in the refrigerator, dead. And, oh my god. <laughs> yeah, it's a horrible idea, right? Uh, but the idea is this is now going to give the character a motivation to change up the character. So this is one way uh, in, in superhero comics, you have like some writer will write for the comic for five years and they get burnt out because they you know they've been writing for the fucking thing for five years. So they mm. they bring in somebody new to write it who has to have read all the previous stuff and they don't want to keep going in the same direction. They have their own ideas. So what they'll do is they'll change things up somehow, right? They'll kill off the main character for a while. Superman's been killed mm. off a few times. And Bruce Wayne is no longer Batman. Robin steps up, whatever it is, right? So by killing the main character's girlfriend, you change it up for the readers. It's a nice shock moment. Um, and mm. then it sort of defines your style for a while and keeps people buying the comic. But that does not work in short stories, right? So it's not really a refrigerator moment <laughs> when he puts her in the airlock. It's that's the point of the story. It's not just to change things up and redefine the character. It is the yeah. point of the story. And so thinking of it as a trope is a misunderstanding of the purpose of 
and, and it sort of makes you think about what the purpose of stories are in the first place, which is pretty damn it's, cool. Um, yeah, it's, it's not a trope. It's the entire plot. That is um, the plot. That, uh, or the, pre- uh, the, the premise that the author and in the case of uh, that story, the cold equations, the editor are trying to thrust upon you that you mm. don't understand. And one of the things that's weird about that story is it, it goes on and on and on about how this is how life is on the frontier. Um, which is a, uh, yep. thing that we don't usually think about, um, when we talk about space anymore. But f- the frontier mentality, um, is something that, you know, is a big part of the United States' um, existence, right? And so mm-hmm. if you have, uh, uh, the space is the new frontier, you can bring the, the hardness of it. But I, I also compare it to like stories like, um, uh, a Jack London one called To Build a Fire, which is, you know, in a place where people are not commonly used to living unless you're a native from there, right? Uh, Yukon, mm. where if you go out at minus 40 degrees, um, you will freeze to death <laughs> unless you have a fire going. And uh, it's it's trying to teach you a lesson. That The point of that story is trying to tell you you don't understand reality correctly. Here's a lesson for you. Um, and, mm. and it, it's kind of like a reality, like your parents saying to you, this is your budget for your, for your life. Okay. Don't spend it on the wrong things. And then you go to the casino <laughs> and spend it <laughs> and spend it. And then they, and then they, then they say, now you have no, like it, it, it's, um, or this is the amount of oxygen you have. Don't go past this particular point or you're a pilot. And, uh, you know, when I took flying lessons, I was like, this is not what I wanted it to be because you have to ask permission to do everything, right? You have to ask mm. permission to go up to an altitude and you, you get it generally, right? But you have to, like, you can't like go, you know, going through alleys and <laughs> under bridges and stuff. That's like completely not allowed and you'll never get to fly again if you do that. And it's a very expensive mm. hobby, right? So if you, if you think of it as like a, uh, a something that is much more like, um, a modern consensual sexual relationship <laughs> rather than an exciting, uh, like I'd like, uh, as, uh, we were talking about in, in the ancient days of my, uh, my, uh, philosophy of law class would talk about like, may I have permission to touch your arm? <laughs> hmm. You, you may, I would like to place my lips against your lips. May I do that? That is allowed. <laughs> now that my lips are touching your lips, I would like to stick my hand on your bra. It's not allowed. Okay. What? What's that? I didn't hear what you said. Is it okay? It's all right. <laughs> I would like to p- place my penis in one of your body parts. Is that okay? Uh, no, I'm not ready yet. Okay. <laughs> Hands off. You know, like, like, um, if you do it, uh, the very, very permission-based system, it's kind of weird, right? It takes the fun out of things. I it, suppose it takes the spontaneous <laughs> excitement out of it, right? Mm. And and it's it's not to say that you know it, it shouldn't be consensual. It's quite the opposite. It's just that not everything has to be verbalized, and uh, and yet if you're if you want to fly airplanes or helicopters, a lot of it has to be verbalized. Mm. And it's a yeah. It, and if you go if you if you haven't taken your lessons to heart, uh, flying lessons to heart, um, that is to say, when you're up in the air, you always have to be looking for a place to uh, land. Um, you will suffer a terrible fate, right? 
If you're mm. not constantly looking for a place to land when your engine will fail, which it will, <laughs> then you will suffer mm-hmm. a terrible fate. And I, I don't want the yeah. pilots who are uh, untrained uh, flying me around, right? So it's it's like that. It's like it's like kind of like growing up. Yeah, yeah. So that that was a profitable episode, I think. What learning how to fly? Or no, or the cold equations. All of it, all of it. Uh, uh, yeah. yeah. Okay. Yeah. 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 So yeah, uh, same, right? But it, yeah. it's a, a very, very like if you want to learn how to fly, the best way to do it is to join the military because uh, they'll teach you for free and they'll pay you. Uh, but then mm-hmm. you might have to go fight in their wars, which is a bit of a gamble. Which kind of sucks, and it seems like it's a pretty tough job. Yeah, and and when you sign up, there's no guarantee that you get that job. You might get the job digging trenches or cleaning bathrooms, mm. right? Yep. Unless yeah. your name is George W. Bush and your dad was a pilot <laughs> in World yeah, War II. Then, <laughs> then you get to stay then, home yeah. in Texas and fly jets and become president yeah. just like your dad. <laughs> yeah. Or prime minister just like your dad in Canada. Mm. <laughs> then you're fine. It's yeah. not a gamble. Yeah, uh, and uh, for us other mere mortals, yeah, not from the upper class. Yeah, no. When, and, when uh, you have a quite so yeah, when you have a bathrooms. when you have to show up for your job, um, uh, rather than you just uh, you know get your name on a document and you fly. Then your the job showing once. up for you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, yeah. Five hundred thousand dollars a month for a no-show job in Ukraine. Um, <laughs> that's mm-hmm. a um, that's a. Uh, a pretty good job. Um, yeah. Or, but apparently both of, uh, Biden's got a daughter who's, was a drug addict too. So it's like, clearly there's something wrong. There's some un- existential problem with their. And the Bidens. Yeah. Or, I don't yeah, maybe. Um, I don't know. Yeah, I'm, I'm not, I'm not living it. I haven't read the, the diary that apparently was bought and such, mm. but yeah, sad story. Yeah. Shall we discuss the Temple of Death? Yeah, why not? That sounds like a nice light topic for us. Yeah, definitely. <laughs> um, <laughs> I'm going to try okay, and add me- Evan one more time, and I'll let you do what you got to do. Go for it. I'm just going to step away for a tick, yep. and I'll be back in about 30 seconds. Probably. Sounds good. Okay, I'm back. All right. <clears throat> um, if Evan shows up later, we will uh, integrate him in seamlessly. Okay, of course. <laughs> I sent you the um, uh, link to the version I processed. Um, oh, yep. Uh, let me uh, put it on Twitter. Was yep. it? Yeah, I saw you sent me message, a, yeah. a PDF. It's just the original publication, probably. Any, any art? No, sadly. <sighs> I wish. Although I did, I do have one uh, for your. Um, I'll send it right now um, for your other. Recent one, No Man's Land. No, a little while ago. Let's see, it's on my desktop. I found this recently. The uh, wind in the portico. Nope, <laughs> farther back. Huh. Uh, you'll recognize it when I bring it up here. Oh, I know. Uh, Ghostland in search of haunted country. We have to book that. Oh, too. right. Yes, yes, For yes. Let's uh, we'll check this out. I don't think you've seen this before. So this, I think, is not uh, our guy. This is Solomon Kane, but have a look at that. 
Yeah, it looks pretty Almiraki. Yeah, right. Very. Although it, there's a few, like well, there's the gun. Yeah, which, that's. Which, although there are guns, there's carbines. I think they say. Yeah, um, but if you look in the very bottom, uh, in the background there, you can see uh, sort of African style huts. And I think this is the vampire oh, yeah. story, um, mm. but it's kind of oh, so, similar. Yeah. Right. In sort of not surprising. Yeah, and it's um, uh, that's definitely an old-fashioned uh, Solomon Kane gun, and he's got the Puritan mm. back, belt buckle on his on his shoe, so you know it's, it's got to be Solomon Kane. Ah. Okay. <laughs> yeah. And he's got a giant black uh, thigh-high boots, so Solomon Kane. I saw that too. I was like, wow. <laughs> <laughs> Buy high boots. Um, yeah. So, uh, yeah, do you want to book that other one first? Um, Ghostland? Uh, yeah, Ghostland. Sure. All sure. right. Um, so, it, if we do power in the human, power in the era of post human capitalism, that's a eight hour book. This other one, I think, is similar, maybe 10. So, we should probably space it uh, a week apart or two, you know, like uh, two weeks apart. Yep. Yeah, I think so. Makes sense. Okay. So, um, that would be May 14th would be, that'd be the 28th. 05, 28, okay? 05, uh, yes, that should be good. All right. Let me, let me check my, uh, calendar and I'll see. What was it called again? Mm. Ghostland. Something Ghostland. Yeah. Because I thought about reading that one, um, when I was doing my folk horror. Oh, you had heard of it before? I had heard of it, and I just looked at it, and I, it looked really interesting. Yeah. Like, they're looking at, you know, The Wicker Man and a few other things. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, and it seems to be somewhat related to, like, hauntology. Yeah. Um, maybe. And uh, and so and I was looking at it, and I'm like, oh, I can't read. I've already read, like, five or six books for this damn essay. I can't read anymore. Edward Parnell um, was the author. Edward hmm. Parnell... And it's called Ghostland something. Ghostland. Yeah. In Search of a Haunted Country, I In think is the subtitle. In Search of a Haunted Yeah, I'm free at the end of May. So, um, country, good. There we go. That should be pretty easy. Nice. Um, and then there's uh, the space in between would be... Oh, wait, wait, wait. I'm just... It's this month. Uh, so that'd be the 21st is the one we can before that. 05, 21. And we'll put something else shorter in there at a later date. Uh, Saturday. Put that right there, too. All right. Mm. Uh, my mom is moving to Vancouver Island uh, sometime in June, probably. June 1st is when she takes possession. And that means oh yeah, of a, of a new place. Yeah, so might might get hairy, but uh, I don't okay, know. we'll see. Yeah, it's it's gonna be a change because she doesn't have any staff there. She doesn't have workers. She doesn't have her son. She's got her sister, who's like a little older than her. That's not great. Mm. Um, and she definitely needs help. But whatever, yeah, yeah. we'll do it. It'll, she seems to think it'll work out, and she's usually. I'm 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 much more like make sure all your ducks are in the bucket before you start shooting, <laughs> to make sure you mm, that, mm. that you're gonna have dead ducks for dinner. Where she's like, there's lots of ducks in the forest. 
I, I think I'm more like you in that I want everything to be organized and in a row before I make a big change. But like, it been, usually will thinking, work out, right? <clears throat> it's just a matter of time and money. But I'm I'm more like, uh, well, why, why risk that? I think it's um, I think it's a matter of money. Uh, it is a matter of time. Uh, yeah, okay, yeah. It's a matter of time and money in the sense that it takes time to like opportunities do come along, but they do take time. Mm-hmm. You can't force them. Um, if they're not there, they're not there. But also. And while you're waiting, you're hemorrhaging money. <laughs> so yes. how much money do you have? Yes. How now, much are you willing to spend? She's actually doing this because of money. It is a capitalist realism situation. Variable rate mortgage means uh, you can't afford to pay your, your your mortgage. I've had that. I've you know I had a mortgage for many years, and when the rate changed, uh, it could cost me a lot more. And I'm like, I need to earn more money to pay for this, or I need to cut back expenses to pay for this. Mm. And uh, and so it's it's funny that she would have a mortgage long after I have paid mine off, but that such is capitalist realism. Mm. <laughs> so it is. Yeah. All right. Okay, so I guess we can start uh now even though we still have no no uh Evan. I'm gonna make one last attempt because it's four fifty nine. That's a full hour of chit chat. Cool. All right, one more time. Still nothing. Adding it now. Um, and I did listen to your um, your outro uh, talking about the book, so I want you to recap some of that. But I will. I've got yeah. some notes, so yeah, that'll be. Um, and I picked up a few other things nice. that I missed. So. All right. Uh, here we go.